everyone, this is Josh from Solopreneur Grind for episode 108 of the Solopreneur Grind podcast. I'm happy to be joined by marketing consultant and fellow podcaster and fellow first name sharer, Josh Boone. Josh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, man. I'm really excited, Josh, for, for a few reasons. The reason we were introduced is because I have been flirting with the idea of more long-form podcasts uh, episodes, and it's something you've been doing and a mutual friend of ours introduced us. Uh, before we get into that, maybe just let us know a little bit more about you, what you do now, and, and then we can kind of dive into uh, into the fun stuff too. Yeah, shout out to Chris for uh, introducing us, and uh, yeah, so I've been doing... Oh, where do we start? All right. Um, yeah, I think we dive into to my history in a little bit because that's going to be a rabbit hole. It's going to take a while. But um, yeah, I've been doing a podcast for six years or sorry, six months now. Um, but I mean, really, in one age, shape or form, I've kind of been doing a podcast for the last 15 years, but I just haven't been recording it. <laughs> like, what, I just, what do you mean by that? Well, let's say like starting out with clients. That's one like clients. I have, you know, sales meetings with I have um you know intro creative meetings strategy sessions with them the entire thing is basically interviewing them and kind of pulling out you know what their problems are what their pain points what makes them unique oftentimes if i'm working directly with founders which most of the time i am why did you start this business why are you passionate mm -hmm. about this business what need are you filling and why and usually when you start getting into that founder's story there's two things that happen one you start getting into the why like simon sinek always says like he did a ted talk and he's got a book you know start with why you know mm -hmm. what is the why that you exist why are you doing it because that's all people really care about they don't care about you know coca-cola they don't care about you know any of these brands they care about what that brand does for me and why it exists um so i'm always trying to figure out that why uh but then i'm also trying to figure out the why personally and a lot of founders you know, I think a lot of people have the image of a founder as this kind of arrogant, uh, narcissistic, you know, kind of person. Um, that's the opposite of most founders I've worked with. Those people exist. Don't get mm -hmm. me wrong. They exist. But most of the founders that I've worked with, um, they're very they, they, they have a good heart and their hearts in the right place. Sometimes they have to make really hard decisions that from the outside look almost sociopathic but that's not like behind the scenes you know i'm getting drinks i'm getting beers or whiskey with them and they're like sitting there really struggling right. uh, and that's a weight that a lot of people don't understand and so you know all you know kind of going on all that every single one of those conversations i'm having is basically an interview and it's me trying to get to the core who that person is why they tick and why they live their life and what their purpose is and then like i said you got those the sidebar conversations over whiskey or beer or whatever, where they're kind of opening up to me about what they're struggling with. And that's one of the reasons why it's like I kind of leaned into being a consultant and being an advisor is because I started realizing after I had my agency that I exited, and we'll get to that in a bit, uh, which I was running a creative agency, um, you know, doing the work. I'm like, I like having this one on one relationships with people where I'm more advising them because I like the personal element to it. Right. Um, so that's that's one. The other one is I, I tra after I exited my business, I traveled the country for two years and I kind of just be, I was just having this like kind of Jack Kerouac, uh, Anthony Bourdain like adventure. And I was just kind of going from bar to bar talking with people and, you know, whatever. And I kind of became like a bar therapist. <laughs> so <laughs> people would just tell me these crazy stories. And, you know, a lot of the places I try to go here in the States, uh, I'm from the Rust Belt, from Dayton, Ohio. It's where I am here now. People are very uh, honest 
and very uh, surface level in a good way. They're very blunt. And some of the other places I go in the country, they either were not like that at all, and they appreciated the bluntness, particularly in the South. There's that kind of Southern hospitality where everyone acts like they're nice, but they're really not. <laughs> no, no hate on the South. I, mm -hmm. I enjoy the South, but there is that for sure. Um, hmm. the, the, the Rust Belt doesn't tolerate that kind of shit. These are hard people that you know, grew up under kind of hard, difficult circumstances, particularly my generation where their parents got laid off, you know, and whatever. So uh, they're, they're no bullshit kind of people. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I'll, I'll kind of be that way. And that was very refreshing. And there's and also like going into some of the more rural areas, they don't really get from people out of town very often. Um, so you mix all that together. And it was just it was really easy to get people to open up. Um, right. So that was so, you know, there's that. And then I've kind of just been a therapist for most of the people in my life. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I feel like I've been doing this for a long time, but I just haven't had a, a microphone in front of me. I used to do internet radio, too, back in the day, back in the shoutcast days, back when. And, and I kind of wish I would have stuck to that because I could have I could have rode that wave into podcasting before any, you know, almost anybody else was doing it. I mean, back then, I think the only people that were doing it were like Kevin Smith um, from Smodcast, Scott Mosier, and then... Um, you know the no agenda guys i think we're doing it that's i mean there wasn't a lot of people doing it tom green obviously he was a really early person but right um yeah but then again it's like if i would have went that route i wouldn't have had the crazy ass adventure that i did and that made me who i am so eh, it all worked out it all happens for a reason right it, it sounds though like the perfect storm right of, of all those things you just just described josh can you just give a little more context to the listeners like what type of consulting do you do what, what type of businesses do you help and then i'm curious to hear like what when did the flip switch when you were like okay it's time to start this podcast yeah yeah the real the the live yeah, podcast yeah. <laughs> the the josh boone show yeah, yeah exactly um, but yeah so i'll give you a quick overview of my background because it's 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 quite a story and it, it kind of gives context to, to why i'm doing what i'm doing now but i started off back in early 2000s 2002 2003 i was i was a you know 13 basically and i started getting into graphic design and web design and then i wanted to build a website so my dad had a tree service i grew up in the small business tree industry and i built him a website and then i built a website for him uh and then i'm like how do i get people to said website and then i started getting into seo back in the uh, search engine optimization you know back in the, then it was really easy you put some keywords in there like dayton ohio tree service mm -hmm. dayton ohio tree trip he showed up number one for like everything and it just like blew up and like you know i was the one a lot of the times like answering the phone sometimes and like you know i would he, we, we had done yeah, yellow pages and stuff like that and gotten more calls but nothing like this so i was like wow there's there's a lot of power in this so then you know his small business friends started asking me to do it and then i started freelancing and then i started building my own websites and then i'm like well how I'm, now i have websites now i have people coming to my websites this is costing me money how do i make money from this Web hosting and stuff was a lot more expensive back then. So it was just like, uh, so then I started getting into affiliate marketing. So like selling Amazon products, for example, and making commission. Uh, I think back then they give you like 12 to 14% of everything, which was awesome. Um, I did that for a while, moved down to Cincinnati, which is about an hour south of here to live with a girlfriend, got a job at a, a marketing agency because I wanted to learn how the real people, you know, the, the mad men did it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I was just a kid and I thought I didn't know what I was doing. Very quickly found out they had no idea what the fuck they were doing <laughs> because they were kind of traditional advertising that got into digital. No clue what they were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and they actually were pretty, 
pretty shady about it. Uh, I didn't like that. But I came in, and I was like, after like a month of being there, I'm like, you guys need to fix your stuff. I can help you do that. Make me a partner. And uh, we talked about that, and I didn't. I got a really bad vibe. And uh, I talked to my dad, and he's like, why don't you just start your own thing? You see how they do it. They're not doing it very well, and yet they're profitable. Why don't you just do your own thing? I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I'll do that. So I ended up starting it with uh, a buddy of mine, and then we, we just hit the ground running and then did that for about three years, did pretty well. And uh, the buddy that I mentioned, Steve, he, he his cousins were starting a company, which ended up being Tentry, and they, hmm. they blew up. And I'm wearing their hat right now, actually. Uh, they blew up. They got on Dragon's Den, which is like the Canadian Shark Tank, and yeah. like they just blew up. And, he, and he, they offered him, "Hey, BCTO, like do this." I'm like, "Dude, you should go take that, take that." Um, so right around that time, I was looking for somebody local because that was one of the other issues: is working remote back then. Like he was in uh, Toronto at the time. Working remote back then was a lot harder than it is now. Yeah, uh, that was 12 years ago. Um, and like we just kind of got this issue where like he was working on more and more clients where he was i was working on more clients here and there was already kind of that that we already started having that scaling issue where you know not being face to face really was starting to kind of mess with things so i'm like you know what even if even if like we had kept that i'm like i kind of want to deviate and uh you know have have some like local people helping me at least i also wanted to travel and so i wanted people locally that could kind of have the face-to-face meetings while i was gone and I ended up, funny enough, within the first week of looking uh, on Facebook through mutual friends, found out that these guys started uh, were starting a creative agency. And so I hit them up, and then we I ended up meet up with them for lunch, and we just hit it off right away. You know, I went, you know, we kind of at first we're just looking to be kind of partners, where like I help them with the digital marketing, they take over more of the creative design stuff. Uh, I wanted to lean more into the marketing and less of the design. I love design, but I just I wanted to do that. And uh, we just kind of ended up merging and it just hmm. hit it off. And that's when things just blew up, you know, went from basically like four people to 12 within I don't know, like a year and a half, something like that. You know, we're doing seven figures. We won a bunch of awards. We run like rookie business of the year. Like we run a hmm. bunch of stuff. We got to work on a lot of really cool local projects. Uh, we got to work on international projects, work with like universities, like one in Saudi Arabia, which was really interesting. Uh, yeah, Kaus, King Abdul's University of Science and Technology. That was before all the uh, shady stuff was going on. Yeah. News with them. Wouldn't work with them now. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but it was it was interesting. So yeah, it was just it was a really cool time. It's almost like the entire time I kind of often say is like the social network soundtrack was playing in the background. Like there was just that that manicness and that, that energy and it just felt like everything was coming together. And it was a really cool time and I grew a lot, but also underneath all that lingering beneath the floorboards was this kind of insidious dark side where I was working like hundred hour weeks. I was I had a developed an ulcer. I Wait. was on yeah, I was on the brat diet, which is bananas, rice, applesauce, and toast for like, <laughs> and I couldn't drink, bananas. and that was kind of that was kind of my thing, was uh, drinking with clients and stuff, and it, and you know I looked like nineteen seventies David Bowie, all like coked out and just like a, I was like I weighed like a hundred and ten pounds, you know, and I mean I'm a small dude, I'm like five seven, but still that's mm-hmm. really fucking skinny, and uh, you know I just wasn't doing very well, and and I already had a lot of imposter syndrome i already dealt with pretty severe social anxiety i already 
um, didn't really have an idea who the fuck I was. And it all just started coming together. And, and I just I just really wasn't enjoying myself anymore. And it's I also just kind of started becoming like as we were growing and scaling, I kind of became a little disassociated with the work. And what I mean by that is like I wasn't really feeling super confident with the work that we were shipping out. And it was just there were so many things that we were juggling. There were so many projects like we have like on a roster of like 50 different clients we were kind of flipping between like i said like a, a, a team of like 12 or something it's like that's a lot mm-hmm. and i just didn't we were shipping a lot of stuff that i didn't feel like had the, the the quality that i wanted to and that was something that i really cared about i really cared about what we were doing and and yeah i don't know it's just all that came together and uh, and um I basically reached a point where I was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I, and and uh, it was actually David Bowie dying that kind of snapped me out of it. Uh, f- funny enough, like he died, and David Bowie was really meant a lot to me. He, he was kind of like a, 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 a Obi Wan Force Ghost kind of mentor. I would always like, a, what would David Bowie do in this situation? Because he was always someone who like, you know, he's always somebody who would just do whatever the hell he wanted, and he didn't care. Like he could have just been Ziggy Stardust for the rest of his life, just touring as Ziggy Stardust and just, you know, being like the Rolling Stones, just touring until he dies. And instead, he's like, nah, at the height of the popularity, I'm going to kill this character. I'm going mm-hmm. to just do something new. And then after that, he did the Berlin trilogy with Brian Eno, which was like the weirdest, like that would have been considered commercial suicide. It was super weird electronic music before that was even a thing. And it, so so fast forward he he knows he has cancer and he's likely he, you know it's he has a good chance of dying he spends the last 18 months making a musical which he always wanted to do and he made black star which is like his magna opus and he, he he releases it on his birthday and then you know two days later he's he dies and it's just i'm like man he he talked about in the 70s how he wanted to make his death art and he got to do it man Mm -hmm. so i'm sitting there like what would i do if i had a year left to live he made the most of it you know he made the most of it it was just beautiful how he went out he went out on his terms and i'm like am i living my life on my terms and if i had a year left to live would i be doing what i'm doing right now and the answer was hell no you know so i i took some time and i just said you know i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna make a transition so over the next year you know i talked with my partners i exited i you know, learned everything I needed to about how to live remotely. I decided I was going to buy an RV and then you know, I bought the <laughs> RV and had to do all the stuff, sold all my stuff, went on the road for two years and had that, you know, can't had an Anthony Bourdain like adventure. And man, I learned a lot. How, how long ago was that? That was in 2016. And then I think mid to late, like around August or so of 2018, I kind of got resituated back here in Dayton, which is funny because I didn't, I didn't think, I would land back here, but being on the road really taught me uh, the importance of community and family and your friends, um, which was something that I always appreciated and cared about, but I didn't truly understand how important that was until I was gone for two years. Right. Damn, man, that's that's a story. We'll we'll definitely unpack a little bit a little bit more of it. So before we do that, so so what was the the trigger that? that made you say hey it's it's podcast time like i, I want to start doing it officially and then did you always know you wanted to go long form like was that from the beginning hey this is what i'm doing yeah i mean the the podcast is something that i wanted to do um low key for a while but high key since 
definitely 20 early 2016 that was one of the things that i when i said hey i want to go on the road and i want to do this um but it was something that i just said like for the first year that i'm on the road i just need to relax mm-hmm. i know me i know me i'm a workaholic uh, I'm literally I, uh, quite addicted to work. My dad was an alcoholic growing up. I knew what addiction was like. I didn't have the alcoholism, even though I drunk a lot, but I knew I could quit. But the work, though, I was just as much of an addict. Like, I just couldn't stop. And so I, I, I kind of told myself, like, I'm not going to go down that path for at least a year. And then it just never really felt like the right time because then by year two, I was starting to think like what's next and just the logistics of being on the road and everything. I'm like, I, I'm not, I don't want to do this. So then, like I said, second year, I decided to kind of come back here. The intention was, I was just, you know, I've been doing this long enough in my experience. I could charge a pretty good amount. I don't have to work a lot here in Dayton, Ohio. It's one of the cheapest, cheapest cost of living in the country. So I was like, you know, I'm basically just going to come back, work part-time, start my podcast, do some writing, and live a pretty chill life and um that didn't happen because <laughs> the, the the workaholism ended up kind of kind of gearing back up and i ended up scaling a lot of things and we can get into that later but you, you fast forward until basically last year um early last year i just like i, I was like i can't not do this anymore i can't not do it like 2020 really the pandemic really kind of forced another looking myself in the mirror and being like, what am I doing? And, and it made me completely transition, um, scale everything down and be like, I need to just focus on this. And it was really hard because I had spent my entire life doing marketing campaigns, marketing, you know, brand strategy and everything else for these clients, but I'd never really done it for myself. And what I mean by that is like, I did it for my agency. I also had partners to help me do it, but I didn't, I never did it for me as a personal brand. And that was definitely a struggle because I started having to confront a lot of imposter syndrome and a lot of insecurity that I didn't even realize was really there. It was kind of obscured. And uh, I definitely knew it was there earlier in my 20s, but I I thought by then I was kind of over it. But I realized that I just hadn't had a way of actually facing it. So, but as far as the long form, yeah, I always knew I wanted to do long form. All the podcasts I listen to are long form. I don't think I listen to a single podcast that's under 45 minutes. Hmm. I just don't get a lot out of it. Um, It's all very surface level to me. There are, you know, maybe one or two podcasts that are more punchy, but even then it's just like, I don't like the punchy. I, I, I like sitting there and hearing all the nuance, all the stories. Cause like, for example, we're what, like 20 something minutes into this. And like, I'm just telling you who I am and we haven't even gotten to everything. Mm-hmm. If we only had 45 minutes, like I would have had to consult, consolidate all this in like five minutes. There's just so much context people would have missed out on. And I, I just, I hate that. You know, I like being able to deep dive with people and not feel like you got to constantly look at the clock, you know? So yeah. yeah, I launched it a little more than six months ago. I think I've got about at this time, about 15 released. I've got about 25 recorded overall. Um, and they're, they're weighty, you know? So I try to get one out every two weeks or so. Um, Mm-hmm. I like to get I like to get them out sooner, but part of the issue for me is doing it all myself. I don't really want to outsource anything right now. Like I want to get everything truly dialed in and I want to have that 
I want to create, you know, treat this like an auteur filmmaker, you know, just I want to have everything exactly how I want it and get the processes ironed out and optimized. Then I'm like, okay, well, I can get somebody to help me with this. I can get somebody to help me with that. But uh, this is very much so as a passion project. Um, I don't care if I don't make any money off of it. Um, I think that'll happen. I think that'll come, but Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not my primary concern right now. Yeah. And and when, when Chris mentioned you, I checked it out and (laughs) especially the last episode, like you go deep, like uh, not just going beyond surface level of a conversation, but topics that are usually not even brought up, right? Uh, yeah. On, on, on a lot of podcasts. Can you talk about, because um, you and I had a decent back and forth by email, and, and I totally agree. And for the listeners that may have been listening to this show for a while, like I've done 107 episodes that are all less than an hour, and I've enjoyed every one of them. But what eventually started happening and the the core, my why for this episode is that sometimes, I would say very often now, especially now that I've done it a hundred plus times, the conversation ends and I really feel like we scratched the surface, right? Like, yes, the guests are awesome. Yes, the things they're sharing are incredible. Yes, I'm learning from every single episode. But I also feel like given another hour or two, there's so much more under, underneath that, that, that could come out of it. Any other, obviously the most well-known long-form podcast is, is Joe Rogan. I've listened to many of his episodes. I, I really like it. You know, some people like him, some people don't. Some people might like his guests, certain ones, some don't. Like, for example, I don't really care about fighting. I, I don't really listen to the episodes when he has fighters on or, you know, certain comedians on. But um, any others that, that you recommend? Any other long-form style podcasts? Yeah, I, I really like Lex Friedman. Um, Lex Friedman's kind of... He, he Rogan has definitely kind of been mentoring him in a way um, and hmm. really championing him and putting him on a pedestal for, for good reason. And Lex is interesting because Lex is kind of the opposite in a lot of ways of Rogan. He's, you know, an MIT professor and researcher. The guy's like one of the most respected AI researchers in the world. Uh, he comes from a very scientific background. He's a Russian dude who uh, him, he jokingly refers to himself as a robot mm-hmm. because he just, you know, he has emotion, but he doesn't really show it. He's just kind of very stoic and very uh, flat in his delivery, which some people that like Rogan and they like that more charismatic kind of thing. He's not that, but some people really appreciate that. Me, I appreciate it. And I think Lex would do really well with somebody that is the opposite of that. And kind of they and and he that's the thing about Lex I like is that he gets very playful when somebody else is playful with him and he can riff off of it. Um, so you know I don't think he's a robot, <laughs> but mm-hmm. that's a good one. Sam Harris I absolutely love his episodes tend to go an hour to an hour and a half, but I know he did with uh, Bology, the uh, former CTO of Coinbase. I know he did like a five hour, four and a half hour one, Ooh. which is crazy. That was an insane episode. Bology is like a, a kind of a manic dude in general. Uh, someone who that's like a day's it. work of five hour episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually editing one right now. It's four and a half hours on my podcast. That's probably Ooh. gonna be the next one that comes out. Um, yeah, we were drinking tequila the entire time. Um, 
so I think I'm going to call the podcast like tequila behavioral psychology and more tequila or something <laughs> like that because we just start talking about like all this crazy existential stuff and we're just getting drunk at the same time and I hadn't done that before some of the podcast episodes I had done I, you know we'd have a drink or two like the one of the first ones with Mark can I did uh you know he and I just have a beer and we're just kind of talking but that this this one I'm gonna release like we we're just straight drunk by the end of it so right. we'll we'll see how that one turns out uh, I just started re-listening to it and being like whoo <laughs> I'm an hour in I'm already kind of slurring my words but you know I, I, I you get nervous about it but also it's like uh, Neil Gaiman has this quote he's like the second you start getting nervous that's when you know you're onto something hmm. you know that's I when like you know that. you're onto something and so that's the, in the entire time I've talked about everything on my podcast from you know, me being suicidal to my imposter syndrome to my severe anxiety. And I talk about it not in the context with a lot of people. Oh, it was 10 years ago. I'm like, I'm dealing with this shit now. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, I even on one podcast it was like earlier today, I was like almost having an anxiety attack. And they're like, you seem really calm. And I'm like, yeah, because I have coping mechanisms, but it doesn't mean I don't deal with it. And I think that's the big thing is these long form podcasts are allowing people to get outside of these kind of pre-scripted conversations and just kind of like a jazz musician just riff and just mm -hmm. go with it and you know I, I know in the, the back and forths you know that we had over email it's like one of the big things is I feel like when you when you talk within the 45 minute window everyone has their pre-scripted thing you know beats that they hit and it, it's not at all some people it's a very intentional thing. They want to stay on point. Most of the people that I've talked to, it's not an intentional thing they do. Like I even did it in this episode. I have these beats and it's down and I know how to do it because I've had to say this story hundreds, probably thousands of times, but I try to keep it as organic as possible. And I try to get that out of the way as quickly as possible so that we can get to the meat and potatoes of things and like get real because really like the story that I of my own story is important because it sets a lot of foundations just like your story is important when I have you on mine and all your guests their stories are important but mm -hmm. let's get through that as quickly as possible unless there are air elements of your story that you usually don't go through and that was one of the last I think the last episode I released at this time was with um Matthew Caruana and he, he was a man who was a suicide survivor and he's now a paraplegic and he has he, he literally his job is to be a speaker for you know kids that are you know going through mental health issues so he has told his story thousands of times and we you know we got through that but then after a while i started feeling him kind of going back into the script and I, I started asking him questions and he's and then afterwards he's like man i have I actually no in the episode towards the end he's like man i i haven't i haven't been asked some of those questions and he's like i, I really had to, and i'm like that that's success for me yeah, that's success. You've been interviewed hundreds of times. You've sp you've done speaking gigs thousands of times, and I got you to think about something new. That's success for me, you know. And and I think that can only be done in long form, right? Because the reality is, if if it's a sub one hour episode, <clears throat> and you want to, as a host, get the quote unquote basics or, or the the highlights out of the guest, there's really only so fancy you can get, right? With the questions and the conversations and, and the topics. It's like, yeah. if you go to a lot of those long form podcasts, I bet you the magic happens post 50%, you know, more than halfway through the episode. Cause like you said, mm -hmm. you know, we're still surface level, right? We, yeah. we still haven't 
gotten too deep. I remember probably the most memorable episode of any podcast, maybe, maybe ever, that I've listened to is when Rogan had David Cho on. And they were talking about Bourdain and... Oh my god. And this was like, I don't know, two hours in. I think the episode was maybe 2.30, 2.45. That was some of like the deepest anything I've ever watched in any form, right? In any whatever you want to call it, art form or whatever. Like, I, I couldn't believe it. And I'm like, there's no way this doesn't happen unless you're an hour and a half, two hours into a conversation with someone like Joe, like you, who kind of knows how to get below the surface in a comfortable way of course right because you want to respect the guests you want to make sure everybody's comfortable did you see that one like man that that was insane yeah no actually when you said that it just like hit me like i just had an aha moment and i'm like when i listen to that and there's that moment when he's crying and he's like oh and he like he's just Mm -hmm. like bawling that hit me man yeah a because bourdain was a massive influence for me and his death actually, and maybe we get to it later, his death actually changed the course of my life. It actually, that was the true, much like how uh, Bowie, the two figures in my life that had the biggest impact that I have never met, is, is definitely Bowie and Bourdain for similar but very different reasons. And uh, Bowie was very much so a positive accelerator of liberance. Uh, it was, he was, a, he was a, 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 an amazing tale of success. Bourdain was a cautionary tale. And, and I, I can get back to that later, but his death really, really hit me. And seeing Cho be that vulnerable publicly, mm-hmm. I was like, not I, that was a huge call to action for me for a podcast because I was like, that is a depth of public human expression that does, is almost never there. Yeah. It is almost never there. And I'm like, that. that's what I want most of my episodes to be like in some way, shape, or form. It doesn't have to be crying. It doesn't have to be whatever. But that vulnerability and that level of depth, like that is a benchmark for me. And yeah. I have an immense amount of respect for David Cho. Uh, David oh, Cho yeah. actually has really, really been a motivating f- uh, figure for me because he's someone that only somebody I feel like in his position who has hundreds of millions of dollars and doesn't have to worry about anything ever, I feel like can confidently do the shit that he does. And because that's what I love about it is that- But but that wasn't confidence, right? Like, I, I guess in a way you could say, you have to have a certain level of confidence to do what he did. And maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll link the clip in the description for those who haven't seen it. Cause there's like a two, three minute clip and Oh yeah. It's it's like almost otherworldly, but I think the two things that really jumped out at me were like number 1 he cries, you know, on air on the most popular podcast in the world, right? Joe Rogan's Joe Rogan's podcast. Um and num- but number 2 like more so than that. I I don't know but like I, I I'm interested to hear kind of Josh like which parts of it maybe hit you the hardest and in what ways. But more so than the crying is he called a friend of his who committed suicide an asshole, right? Like, I, I don't yeah. want to butcher the, the the clip and the text and, you know, people should go watch it. But he's saying on air, like, you're an asshole. You murdered yourself. You're an asshole. Yeah. And if anything, I think that's way beyond anything any you know anybody would say on, on air in front of an audience that big. Calling somebody who had such 
mental health issues that they committed suicide, and you're on air on the most popular podcast in the world calling that person an asshole. Yeah. I don't know. It, it was it was like mind boggling. It, it was like like what what was it that kind of hit you the hardest about it? I, I think it's just yeah. It, there was there was a lot. So there's there's I guess there's my perspective that I have on it now because I know much more about what Bourdain was going through now than I knew when I was listening to it. Uh, there's a documentary Roadrunner that came out which I watched, and there is um, the oral autobiography of Bourdain, which his long-term uh, assistant wrote. Hmm. That has a lot of it's basically just interviews of all of his closest friends. And what I realized is that it's all the interviews that were done for Roadrunner. And she got the transcripts for him. And a lot of the stuff in Roadrunner cuts out a significant amount of kind of the hmm. dark side. You can actually see it. Like there's direct quotes that were in Roadrunner. And then there's like eight paragraphs after that. And you're mm -hmm. like, oh, okay. The one that truly though changed my perspective on Bourdain and gave me so much context both on Bourdain uh, and also you know David Cho's response and a lot of his other things was in the weeds by Tom Vitelli and Tom Vitelli was his long-term producer who produced the vast majority of his stuff all the way back to uh, I believe a cook's tour uh, which was his first show before No Reservations and Tom Vitelli had all the raw footage hmm. all of it and he started going back and watch, listening to all the raw footage, all the B-roll, everything. And he just spent like two years, I guess, doing that. And the, the beautiful thing is that there's a lot of quotes in there. And it's not just, oh, I remember this. It's literally what Bourdain said because <laughs> he's got all the B-roll. And man, it cha fundamentally changed my perspective on Bourdain. It made him a much more three-dimensional figure. And it also gave like, a lot of context, a lot of context to a lot of the quotes from people that worked with him or were closest to him. And um, the two answers I would give is one, the first thing that stood out to me, I guess, was just, it's he. Ba it was basically David Cho having somewhat between a public therapy session with himself and Bourdain and also kind of like a public exorcism almost yeah. where he was just opening his rib cage up and exposing the core of his soul to millions and millions of people and i just god man the, the balls it takes to do that is insane yeah um and the youtube comments i highly recommend like there's yeah. some some extremely emotional and positive like uh, youtube a platform where you can take a big risk looking at those comments and it was just nothing but like respect appreciation yeah. uh, you know all that stuff anyways uh you were saying the, the the second point too so that was at the time the second point is that now in retrospect knowing what i know now is that he was calling bourdain an asshole not because oh you killed yourself you murdered yourself that's a part of it but it's also because bourdain had every fucking opportunity every opportunity he had all these people again this is based on uh the all the the oral bio autobiography of all the people that were closest to him and tom vitelli so this is me just my opinion based on that i'm not objectively saying this is what happened with Wardane, but i tend to believe what most of the people are because all the stories correlate uh there are some interesting things and even the 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 author 
of the oral autobiography says that it's interesting because some of the people you can see their perspectives on the same thing are a little different but still the truth is typically pretty aligned that Bourdain had a total self-awareness of what he was doing when he was doing it in the moment and knew he was hurting people around him knew he was hurting himself knew this relationship with his partner at the time was very destructive and was going to end very very badly he had every opportunity to get off of doing slowing down significantly reducing his workload even pausing a lot of it he had a book deal which he 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 could just basically pause his show and then live in vietnam for a year or two and then write a book at his leisure about it and that gave him every opportunity to get off the treadmill that was wearing him down and slow down he constantly was saying he wishes he could be more around people and he could be around his family and all this other stuff he had every opportunity to do it uh uh, the two his two executive producers that ran 0.0 his production company were he, he had this meeting with them and and they said it was very odd because it was like something out of a movie where Bourdain like picked this bar that was kind of dimly lit and they sat at the end of it and he was already there and like he was like had this like this ambushing them being like oh, we gotta talk about this like I'm gonna break the band up and they're just like okay do it our priority is not a show. It's you. We've known you. Like we, we built this production company because of you. We don't. We, we don't. You don't owe us anything. Go do it. And then he immediately backpedaled because he mm. thought that they were going to fight against him. He had every opportunity. He had people around him begging to, to for him to get help, and he's just like, nah. And then he continued to go down this relationship, which, by all accounts, everybody around him was telling him was terrible for him. Uh, was destructive. He he completely uh, like when Josh Homme had some like drama going on uh, in social media. Uh, he completely threw his long term friend under the bus. Didn't even call him. Like he publicly was eviscerating people when all the whole Me Too movement was happening, just because his partner at the time was you know leading this me too movement and he basically had no prisoners like i'm just going to completely destroy all my friendships everybody around me for his new addiction which was his girlfriend mm -hmm. and it's hard it's hard for me to look at the idea who i thought bourdain was because man he was an elegant wise amazing human being but also he was quite a cruel and controlling and at times almost sociopathic guy and those both right. are very much so aligned it's, it's it's like the people bourdain was such a benevolent character to the people that were not in his life like if he met somebody out in public he would go out of his way to be there for them but if it's somebody internal in his life he definitely had this cult leader type of uh this this cult leader kind of thing like in the book tom vitelli even says somebody who's new to the production said like this is like a cult and tom's like no it's not and then he's like oh it is <laughs> and it very much so he ran it like a cult leader like there's this one story about how in the uh the the, the was it uganda um it wasn't kimbanda it was uh I, I forget there's one episode where they're on the river and they're going on this boat and they have these chickens and they're literally like going to kill these chickens. And he said every single member of the crew, every single member of the crew was there, had to kill a chicken, slit its throat, 
and all they had was like basically like butter knives, like these really dull mm. knives. So the so the chickens are struggling. It's not clean. It's not whatever. And Tom Vitale, who's a you know a, a, I think he's a vegetarian and he's a strong empath, was like cry, trying to do it and he couldn't do it. And then the chicken's struggling and he felt bad and he just ran to the back of the boat and he's just like sobbing his eyes because he's a bit, he's he's got a big heart. And then Bourdain goes up to him afterwards, takes some of the blood in his hands, puts a dot on his forehead, and says, "Now you can join our treehouse." Oy vey. Dude, this is a fifty-something-year-old man doing the, that kind of cult, like college fraternity kind of hazing. I mean, it's it really changed my opinion. It's, a couple of his people said Tony never stopped being the guy from Kitchen Confidential, and I totally understand what they're talking about now. He always was that abrasive dude, and it's just that they got better and better at curating his image over time. Hmm. So there's Tony Bourdain, and then there's Anthony Bourdain. Right. And so when when David Show is up there on Rogan saying, you're an asshole, he's not talking about Anthony Bourdain. He's talking about Tony Bourdain. And that was the big aha moment for me, because Tony Bourdain was an asshole. You know? Right. But right. I had to I had cool. to let go of my idea who Anthony Bourdain was. Right. And I had to be like, this is Tony Bourdain. This is a, a, a very flawed human being. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it like oddly goes hand in hand with what we're talking about with podcasts, which is on most podcasts, probably like on most news websites, social media sites, we're seeing surface level stuff, right? Yeah. Like we don't. I don't know a tenth of the background info that you probably looked into and, and researched and watched or read. <laughs> and so maybe some of that stuff shouldn't be as, as much of a surprise because we just don't know what's going on in the background. And what I wanted to do is go back to that part in your story where you were feeling on the surface, it sounds like it probably looked like things were going great, right? You're oh, yeah. running a successful company. Things are scaling up. And internally, what, what you were, I think, alluding to, and maybe we can go into more detail on, is it's not how you were feeling at all, right? But probably nobody would have known. And so yeah. how, like, how do we fix that, right? In the sense that there's obviously, it has to come from the person who is feeling off, but... How can anybody else help if they don't know that it's going on, right? So it's kind of like this weird dichotomy of you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to start the process yourself because if you're not sharing any of it, nobody else will know. Or because we now know that entrepreneurship's difficult, it's stressful. Heck, life is stressful. More people than we think are going through difficulties. Should we take it upon ourselves to ask more deep questions, get into more of these deep conversations off air as well, right? Because that's maybe even more important. Yeah, I, I yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, it, it's back back then, when I when I had the agency, and you know, I was working 100 hour weeks, like you're right, most people in the community were like, hey, uh, you know, they're successful, like I was 23 when we started that iteration of the business and then i left when i was 26 so like hey early 20 something year old 
most of the people I knew in the business community were older than me. And like, you know, we kind of came in and the business started blowing up. And again, you know, it's a big fish in a small pond. It's Dayton, Ohio, you know, it's seven figure business. It's not like we were, you know, the next Facebook or anything, but around here it was, it was pretty big deal. Well, and still um, mid, I mean, mid twenties, I'm yeah. assuming you were making decent money yourself too, right? Working for, you know, your own company. That's no, yeah. uh, it's no small feat, right? Well, yeah. I mean, the other thing about it is most people, I think, thought we were like millionaires and stuff. It's like we weren't. We were actually weren't taking that much money for our salary because we were taking that and reinvesting it. You know, mm -hmm. the whole plan was that we were going to keep doing that. And then once we got it to a sufficient point, then we could start taking more and taking more and do it from there. So that was another thing. People thought we were like rich and shit. It's just like, no, no, I actually wasn't taking that much money because my living expenses were minimal. I lived in an area like right outside, like five minutes outside of downtown uh like right on the cusp uh it was kind of where, where the arts district and stuff like that rent was cheap i was living with my best friend um because i wanted to live with him so like we, we we everything was cheap so it's just like let's just do this put all the money into the business and um yeah i don't know i wore suits that fit me really well because hey you go to you go to h&m and you buy a suit and then you go take it to a tailor you know everything about that's the thing that made me realize is that, you know, the fake it till you make it. Everyone saw us, you know, we got these, this business, we got this nice downtown office. We're in suits. We're driving Acuras. Uh, the suits fit us really well. We're drinking whiskey all the time. It's like this fucking Don Draper kind of image. Everyone thought we were uh, loaded or whatever. Not everyone. I'm sure there's people that saw through it, but I'm just saying most of the people that I talked to, you know, they, um, and we weren't, you know, and, and part of it when we started, I think, was trying to because, you know, get early 20 something year olds, imposter syndrome, whatever. Like we were definitely trying to put an image. But I think towards the end, it's just it just kind of became us. You know, it's like if you wear the Batman suit long enough, you just start to kind of feel like you're Batman. And it's mm -hmm. kind of like what it was where I started adopting this this concept of myself as I am this kind of Don Draper-esque kind of person. Um is, is that such a bad thing, though, especially considering what you're trying to do? Now, if that's not what you're trying to do or you're not trying to grow a marketing company, maybe that's not what you should be doing. But the problem is you can't take that off in your off time. That's where it gets insidious because Don Draper, um, if, you've, if you've seen Mad Men, you, the first couple episodes, Don Draper looks like this mysterious kind of Bruce Wayne kind of character. You know, I mean, John Hamm is a gorgeous man and he's got this, you know, clean cut suit on. He's sitting there with a glass of whiskey and he's smoking a cigarette. I mean, just the epitome of cool, you know, uh, and he talks with women. He knows exactly what to say. And, you know, he's, he's just charismatic. But very quickly, you realize he's just basically a narcissistic drunk. <laughs> and um, he does have a lot of good ideas, but he also has a lot of really bad ideas. He's horribly micromanaging and controlling. He's lazy a lot of the time. He's completely a, a terrible father. Uh, he's very surface level. He never actually has any sort of in-depth relationship with anybody. And anybody he tries to, he completely just burns it to the ground. And the entire show, he's running. Even at the, the last couple episodes, he's running. Literally just leaves a meeting and just decides I'm going to take a cross country trip and not tell anybody and just leave. I mean, the dude is the epitome of escapism. Uh, he, he's a vapid hollow carcass of a human being. And I'm, that's who I'm trying to emulate. 
oh, that's not good. And that's what happened is I just, I'm someone who's always been really honest and sincere. And I started getting caught up in what I'm supposed to be. I started getting mm. caught up in this image because then I'm like, okay, well, this is who I am as, a, you know, who am I as a business owner? Who am I as a boss? Who am I as, I, who am I as a colleague? Who am I as a friend? Who am I as a person in the community that other people see and I'm representing a brand? That's another thing people don't realize is like when you're in a small town like this, and I would say it's the same thing if you're in a larger town and you have a larger brand, but you aren't just you. You are also representing your business. And particularly when you're smaller and you're a founder, they're directly related. If you go out and make an ass of yourself, people are like, oh, yeah, the, 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 the XYZ guys were here and they just trashed a place. They didn't tip the bartender very well. People talk, mm -hmm. talk. And that was a, a, a thing that, you know, I'm, I'm constantly, I started having severe social anxiety more than I default do because every single time I go out, I would know the bartenders. I'd know people in there. I'd know whatever. And I felt like I was being watched at all times. And hmm. that was paranoid. Most people, if they saw me, I'm sure they're like, oh, yeah, it's one of the catapult dudes. That's it. They don't think about me beyond that. They don't care. You know, at most, they're like, oh, okay, that guy's an asshole. Oh, okay, that guy's all right. Like, but at the time, when you know you've got a tremendous amount of caffeine and cortisol and adderall and everything going through your system and you're drinking a lot every day uh you know because you have like a a, a a meeting during the day and you're having you know, a glass of whiskey you've got several meetings in the afternoon you're having beers with clients and then after that you got a networking event you're going to there's two or three more drinks then you get dinner with your co-founder and that's a couple more drinks and then maybe you go meet up with a chick that you're seeing um or you go to a show or whatever okay you just had five to ten drinks in a day and, it, and it's, it's somebody yeah it's tuesday and the <laughs> yeah. thing is is like from the outside that would not look like an alcoholic I'm in a suit and I'm drinking and every single one of those occurrences, it's a social situation. I'm not at home pounding, you know, half a half a half a thing of whiskey or like a 12 pack. I wasn't that kind of alcoholic. Uh, I was just a functional social alcoholic that was in social circumstances where I'm always drinking. So right. you add all that together and then that basically just acts as a uh, a compounding factor for baseline social anxiety and imposter syndrome I already had so yeah it was it was it was really difficult to interface so it's like you know to, to your your question of what do you do about it man I had people in my life like my best friend I was talking about who was really worried about me and I had doctors I was starting to see and they're like you need to remove stress from your life and I'm like yeah but I got a business I'm more I don't understand how I can do that mm -hmm. and they're like well figure it out and after a couple of years of doing that, where I was going to a cardiologist and the cardiologist was like, you know, after a couple of times of seeing me being like, dude, if you don't slow down, like you're going to have a heart attack, like in your early forties or maybe even your late thirties, you cannot, right. I was like pre hypertension. They're like, you got to slow down. And it just, that David Bowie, you know, that's where just the, the straw, the camel broke the camel's back. It sounds kind of hyperbolic when you're like, oh, David Bowie. But it's like, no, that I was already getting to that point. That was just the the, 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 the ignition that I needed. But it was already there. It was already mounted. I probably would have got to that point anyway. But, you know, so I had to just make a clean break. But as far as like what could be do it would do. But I mean, I, I talk with people all the time and I try to kind of mentor and advise a lot of founders that I talk to or people that are junior in the career. And I'm trying to kind of be the, the voice that 
I didn't have, you know, I didn't really have a lot of mentors at the time. And some of the people that were, I think they kind of thought that I, like, I was younger and all the tech stuff that was happening was like very different. They weren't used to it. And this whole lifestyle shift of, you know, this, these digital startups that are like exploding. Like, I think a lot of people in my area, they were used to, you know, B2B businesses that slowly scale. Like, I, I think a lot of those people didn't really know what to tell me. And I also just wasn't that close with a lot of them. So I didn't think they felt comfortable doing that. Like, I, I don't know. I right. wasn't as vulnerable as I am now. But so, what, what, what do you think <clears throat> if, if you were sitting across the table from yourself, 10 years ago, or you said what, 2013 to 2016, yeah. and Josh of 2015 came to Josh of 2022 and yeah. said, what do I do? What would you recommend? And, and part of the reason why I'm asking is that part of this show, part of the, a lot of the content that I kind of create is promoting entrepreneurship, right? Because, yeah. uh, you know, I think we, we both agree how important it is for a wide variety of reasons, especially for people like us who do want to start their own business. Maybe it's a tech startup and maybe it explodes. Maybe it's a B2B service business. And after a year or two, they're making half a million, 750, seven figures. I, I Like, I'm assuming your answer wouldn't be, hey, if your business gets too big and stressful, quit and tone it down, right? Maybe it is. I'm, I'm curious to hear, is there a way that Josh of 2015, without breaking away completely, maybe could have made it through? Or, or I, I don't know, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think. Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's some, there's some X factors uh, with my specific circumstance with that situation. I think if I had to, I guess there's two routes that I guess I would go. There's one what I would say to myself in 2015, and there's one that I would say to probably, you know, a generic person that's in a similar kind of circumstance. I mean, ultimately I'd have to know what their circumstances are and all the other stuff, but as kind of a blanket, if I was talking to myself, you know, my, my two business partners, uh, we were kind of aligned in the direction that we wanted to go in for the first couple of years. And we never really sat back and reassessed. Um, we kind of did, like we had some business strategy sessions, but I would say more so I never reassessed. I never took that step back and like, where am I going? And a question that I asked myself in 2016 and a question that I continue to ask myself and I talk a lot about on my podcast is what am I optimizing for? And I got that question from Dr. Peter Atia, and he was asking himself, what is he optimizing for in his life? And I'm like, oh, that the second he said that, it was just like one of those, you know, lightning strike moments where it hits you in your soul. It's kind of like when David Cho was breaking down. I'm like, oh, there's something there, there's something special in there. That's a secret sauce for something. And I'm going to borrow that. I'm going to mm -hmm. take that, put that in my toolkit, you know, um, which I, you know, I'm utilizing that toolkit right now. I, you know, the, the, the David Cho thing and the, what the, you know, what am I optimizing for in my certain circumstances is like, okay, what are you optimizing for? And I'd have to be like, Oh, um, I guess I'm optimizing cause I want to scale this business. Um, you know, I want to do this and I'm like, okay, yeah. Okay. You're doing that. Yeah. Cool. That's surface level. Why are you doing that? It's like, well, at the time I wanted to retire by the time I was 30, I was 26 and the way it was going, I, may have been able to do that in some way, shape or form. 
because really my goal was I need like, you know, a million dollars in the bank, $750,000 to be sure. And you could live off the interest pretty comfortably, like 30,000, $35,000 $35, a year. And that's enough in Dayton, Ohio to just kind of exist. And then you can do whatever the hell you want. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I, I probably could have done that. And I definitely could have done that if I would have, you, you know, saved everything and done it wisely. So it wasn't a problem. And so that was my goal. And then I'm like, okay, well, why do you want to do that? It's like, well, I want to go travel. Why do you want to travel? Well, I want to go see interesting stuff. Why do you want to go see interesting stuff? Because I, I don't like what I'm doing now. And I, it's escapism. Hmm. What are you escaping? Well, I'm escaping my life. So when I'm somewhere else, I don't have to be me. I get to be whoever I want to be. It's like, well, why don't you like you? It's like, well, I don't like me right now because uh, I don't feel like I'm being authentic. Well, why don't you feel like you're being authentic? Because I'm wrapped up in this idea of who I am. Well, who are you? I have no fucking idea. Right. I want to go off into a different place so that I can be in an area where I have a blank canvas and I can figure out who I am. Okay, well, you should probably get away for a while and then you can come back if you want. You know, that's ultimately the, the kind of path that I ended up going down is that I needed to leave here and I also needed to leave my business because even if I could have found a way to make it work, I wouldn't have had that clean break and I would have been tethered to it, elements of who I used to be. And right. The other element was, like I said, my business partners, they had a very, they had a direction they wanted to go in that no longer aligned with where I wanted to. And there's two of them. We had, you know, 10 or so employees, uh, you know, give or take, depending on on the month. But we had a lot of clients whom I, it would have been selfish to me, like, hey, I want to go fully remote or I want to leave or whatever. It's just like, you can start. If you're small you and agile, you, you can go into remote working, but the entire way that we had the business developed is we're super involved in the downtown Dayton community, in our local community. We're super involved in, in all this other stuff. It's the face-to-face. It's having drinks with the clients. It's like if I'm in, you know, if I'm in Taiwan or something, you know, I was talking about earlier, my one buddy that I had the first agency with, he was in Toronto even that we started having problems what if everything is happening there i'd be so out of the loop and i'm like so practically it doesn't make sense and i'm like also uh one of my business partners in particular had a very specific way in which he wanted to to do things that never didn't really align with me anymore as a human being uh so i'm like i just need to leave mm-hmm. i could start another agency i could if that was my thing i was like i could always start another agency and be fully remote and do whatever I want to do. I could pick clients that I want to work with more directly and I could do a small thing. So I'm like, okay, that's the worst case scenario. I just start something new that makes it exciting. So I need to leave. And that's ultimately what I came to. I think I would just ask myself those questions because I could get, in a, I could get in a, mach- a time machine, go back and be like, dude, you need to leave. You need to go on the road. You need to do this. You need to do that. And my 2015 self would be like, go fuck yourself. Like, you know, mm-hmm. because I had people telling me that I had doctors telling me you got to slow down. You got to kill yourself. It didn't matter. I, I was very much so like Walter White and uh, Breaking Bad. Like, I'm doing it for my family. It's like, are you actually doing it for a family? And at the very final, the last episode, he's like, I'm doing it for me. 
I gave myself the illusion that I was doing it for this big cause, but really I was doing it for myself. And then it got to a point where I no longer was doing it for myself. And I didn't even know why I was doing it anymore because I didn't, right. I didn't touch base. So what would I do for somebody else? I think I would ask them the same thing. What are you optimizing for? You know, what is it that you're optimizing for in your life? Is it still serving you? And if it's not, well, deviate. You're an entrepreneur. You're someone who's agile and you are God of your own world and you can do whatever the hell you want. And if you're not, well, then you're not on, you're not an entrepreneur. You're being right. you're being owned by something else. Maybe you messed up and you took too much VC money and now they own you. Well, you can get out of that. You can you can pivot that. You got you got to find a way to do that. Uh, you know, maybe you got a business partner that's overbearing and a narcissist and no longer is like, you know, collaborating with you. Okay, well, you got to figure that out. Maybe you leave. Maybe you get him kicked out. Maybe you do something. Maybe go to business therapy together. You know, you figure that out. But I would just say, is what you're doing still serving you? What are you optimizing for? And then you figure out what you're optimizing for truly, not surface level. You know, a question that I ask myself also is what would I do if I had a year left to live? Because that really puts it in the perspective. What would I do if I had a year left to live? At the time, and this is how I came to the conclusion, I would travel. I would go see all the things that I didn't get to do. Uh, and then I would write kind of all the things that I had learned down, even if it's just for myself, like a little manifesto. And then I would just spend time with my friends and my family and I'd die. That's what I would do. That's, you know, minus the dying thing, <laughs> what mm -hmm. I basically did. And right. I think that puts it in the perspective. So, you know, it, it I, I think people feel like they're trapped. And I mean, I had a business, I was, I had a house, I had all this stuff. You know, we had, I had a lot of things grounding me here and I found a way out. I think most people can, you know, right. most and people can. One of the things that really stuck out from that answer is, is the, and, and I've kind of heard this before on different shows or kind of read it in books is like, ask yourself why five, 10 times in a row, right? Exactly yeah, yeah. what you said, like, Hey, what am I opting for this? Okay. But why? Okay. But why? And usually it's not until like the fifth or more answer that you actually get to the true source when, when things kind of get, get interesting. So Josh, like, what do you think founders, entrepreneurs, what can we do preemptively to avoid situations like that? Because you probably know this way better than I do because you work, as you said, directly with many founders. This is, I'm assuming, extremely common given the fact that you're a co-founder of maybe a VC-backed company or you're uh, you know, a co-founder of a whatever service business doing seven figures. Are there things that we can do? Is there, is there a way we can prep? Is there a way we can design our lives so that hopefully you got to figure if, if you're building a business that gets to a certain level of success, there's going to be stress, right? There's going to be difficult times. There's going to be headaches. There's going to be maybe imposter syndrome, maybe not. I guess that that might depend a little bit more on the person. I, I, I maybe want to touch on that topic a little bit deeper in a minute. But how can we prep for it? How can we give ourselves the best chance to minimize what inevitably is coming? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think it comes down to when you're starting any sort of new project or anything, a lot of times you get this 
this kind of manic high, you know, you get this, it's a new project, it's a new thing. You know, I'm a starter, for example, I'm a starter. Um, you know, I've done some angel investing. I think that will and continue to and probably increasingly be where I put my consulting effort into um, because I like new things, new ideas and do whatever. Once it's kind of figured out and the 80-20 is done, I get really bored. I get really bored. Um, and, you know, you need people like that. You need people that are like Steve Jobs and then you need people that are, are you know, like, like Tim, Tim Cook. Cook who yeah. Are, yeah, who are basically optimizers. They, they, they're good managers and they're good optimizers. You know, he's someone, Tim Cook is doing exactly what Tim Cook's supposed to do, which is optimizing processes. I do think Apple needs another Steve Jobs type to kind of be a little bit more of a visionary. But, you know, that's how a lot of these companies go. They, they have visionary founders, they're CEOs that lead the way, and then they have a COO that's optimizing that takes over, and you have this life cycle. I, I think that you need to prepare for that second phase, and a lot of people don't because they just get so manic. And, and, and I mean, there's a lot of reasons. A, they get kind of manic and they get really t- get tunnel vision because they're so excited about the thing. And the second thing is, is they're just, they, they're not thinking too far ahead, and understandably so, because they're like, we just got to get traction. I don't know if this business is going to survive six months from now, three months, a year. I don't want to think too much about that. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. We, we worked with some business strategists when we first started, you know, about a year into the business and we were coming up with a five and 10 year plan. Well, we had a huge opportunity that came up like two months later, completely deviated all that. Mm-hmm. So I think five, 10 year plans are bullshit because particularly if you're an entrepreneur, because you're, you're jumping all over the place. So, that said, I think what's important, though, is to ask yourself, what are you optimizing for in your life? And what are you optimizing for with this business? And just lay that out. And then what would success look like? So this is a question that I ask every single client when, you know, we're kind of having a, a, an intro meeting, like, do are we a good fit? And I say, imagine I got this from, um, oh God, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll have it in a minute. Um, but basically it's an amazing question where it's just like imagine it's three years from now and we're getting coffee covid's not a thing whatever we're we're at your place you know or we're you know in new york or wherever you're based out of we're getting coffee we're getting a beer and it's three years from now and you are just over the moon happy with the work that we've done together what did i do to make you so damn happy and that is where you get the secret sauce that's where you you get to the core of it because sometimes like mm-hmm. people come to me and they want help with marketing or you know I, i'm i kind of specialize in search engine optimization strategy you know content strategy and stuff like that so people come to me and they're like hey we we need somebody we're a startup we need somebody to help us kind of lead seo efforts or you know we're a big or a startup that has gained a lot of traction but we're mostly you know paid per click ads and we know that we need organic presence because we're overly relying on ads blah 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 so then I'm like, okay, well, you want to do SEO, why? And it's always like, they got to hit these quotas. Mm-hmm. They got to hit these things. They have these KPIs they want to do. And that's boring to me. That's super boring. I mean, I, obviously I want it to be monetarily successful. Yeah, I want to be able to measure it. You know, what doesn't get met, ma- you know, what, what gets measured gets managed. But I, I want the why. So I love that question because the, the three years is long enough where they're like, well, 
you know, depending on who they are, let's say they're a marketing director or whatever, or they're, you know, CMO, they're like, well, you help us get to this. We want to be able to prep ourselves to exit. You come in and do this. Now we're very sustainable. We're growing. And then, you know, I've done a good job and we, we look really good and just long-term sustainable. And then we'll get bought out. And three years from now, you know, I'll be doing something else. I'm like, all right, so you want me to help you prepare this business to, you want to help me, you want me to help you prepare to exit? And they're like, yeah, okay, now we're getting somewhere. You know, why do you want to do that? You know, and I'm starting to get, because I want to know who, who I'm dealing with too, what their intention is. Mm-hmm. So, but I would do the same thing with, with somebody like, okay, well, what does success look like three years from now? Because if they just say, hey, I just want to scale and exit, it's like, well, you got to worry about that. Because then every single decision that you make is going to be optimized to that. And that can take you down some very nefarious paths, you know? So mm-hmm. you got, there, there are clients that I've worked with where they, you know, founders where they have a really altruistic goal, but they find themselves year two and three making a lot of decisions that, you know, year zero them would be very ashamed of. And they're like, well, I'm doing it because for you know the greater cause, the greater good. Like we got to do this so we can do this. We can scale quicker, because if we scale quicker, then we can do this. We can do that. And it's like, yeah, but you're also there's a lot of collateral damage along the way, both to your employees and yourself. Yeah. So like, what I would say is like, you know, what are you optimizing for? What does success look like? Basically, what's your goal with this? And then what kind of governors can you install? kind of boundaries you know what can you install ahead of time and say okay this is a hard limit for me this is a hard limit for me you know one for myself it's like i don't really work on the weekends you know you and i are chatting it's a sunday but i don't really consider that this much work and i also made sure i have nothing on my schedule yesterday so i can just kind of chill and then Mm -hmm. i'm not going to do anything else after this so i make it so that i don't work on the weekends and after a certain time during the day i don't reply to emails unless it is absolutely urgent and i know it's urgent uh, I just don't don't deal with it. And my clients now know, hey, it's past such and such. Probably not going to expect the email from Josh after the weekend. Like All those things are governors I set in this place because I know that I need them. But I didn't have those governors when I started out. So I think it comes down to, yeah, like asking yourself those big questions and how can you construct governors to keep you accountable? That you have to act like, you know, the hand of God comes down and saying, you know, this is the 10 commandments of how you operate your life as a business founder. Like you have to stick to them. You know, right. if you have to, if there's a really good reason, like a really, really good reason. Okay. But you have to immediately get back on that routine. You can't like, Oh, okay. Well I skipped legs days. So I get to skip another one. It's like, no, you got to get right back on. So that's, that's probably how I would handle it and how I have handled it. And then, you know, whether the founders listen or not, it's a mixed bag. It's yeah. a mixed bag. That's a whole other, uh, whole other yeah. topic, right? Is is it a red flag, Josh, when a founder or a C-suite says, you know, we want to do this because we want to exit? I mean, sure, I, I guess that's a pretty big motivator. And, and part of the reason why we start businesses, right, is because of that upside that wouldn't come from regular employment, quote-unquote, but is that a concern from you who's so focused on the why? It can be. It, it of itself, if everything else is aligned, um, you know, for example, there's some businesses that I think that the founders, uh, one that I'm thinking about in particular, it was probably about a year ago, and I was talking with her, 
and she was like, yeah, we want to, I want to exit in the next five years. And I was like, okay, that, that seems reasonable. Uh, you know, it's like, Hey, I want to exit in the next two, three years. Okay. Then you start getting into territory where they're just thinking short term five, six years. That's reasonable. Um, then I don't really hate on that, but it also, if it stacks with a lot of other questions that make me sus suspicious, not so much. So I think it, it just kind of comes down to that. Overall, yeah, I mean, I like working with founders that are like, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of Jeff Bezos overall, but he as a business strategist, Jesus Christ, you can't find a better example of someone who's like tw thinking of things 20 years ahead and he mm -hmm. sticks with the business. He just now stepped down, you know which I mean, mm -hmm. who can blame him, you know, because he wants to focus on something else. Good for him. But, mm -hmm. you know, that is someone who, um, you know, that's a whole nother case scenario. But like, I like working with founders that are just like, no, I want to work on this for a while. Like some of my favorite clients are ones that, you know, they're just steadily growing and it's very intentional growth. They're not having these hockey stick, you know, crazy growth, but, um, you know, they legitimately love doing what they're doing. And those are my favorite. Those are my favorite because it's not as impressive of a case study for me. I can't say, oh, I helped them 4X or whatever, but I don't really care about that. I've got cases. You know, me personally as a consultant, like I've got case studies where I've been able to do that with people. Mm -hmm. Day to day, I like working with people where it's just like, uh, you know, we could do that, but I feel like we're already pretty overwhelmed as it is. And, I, you know, we already got a lot on our plate. Let's hold that off for, you know, until like Q3 instead of Q1. I'm like, cool. You know, right. hey, we're not going to kill our employees. You know, it's like that's so to answer your question, it's like, yeah, it's not it <laughs> is a red flag. But how vibrant of a red flag it is really depends on what their intentions are and, and just how I kind of get them as a person, you know. Right. Yeah. No, it, it, it makes sense. Josh, I wanted to switch a little bit towards the the imposter syndrome portion that's kind of jumped out at me a few times as you've as you've given some answers. And I yeah. think it's an interesting topic because it's it almost seems inherent with entrepreneurship, especially with tech founders. You kind of alluded to like this world of tech where, you know, overnight, quote unquote, you know, within a few months or a few years, you can go from Joe Schmo who graduated from wherever to, you know, VC back doing, you know, some of this crazy stuff or, or whatever. I, I guess what I'm what I'm interested in hearing is a, a little bit about your struggle with it and your thoughts in the sense that I think it's baked into entrepreneurship, right? Because if you if you look at the if you look at the journey of an entrepreneur, you're starting something that didn't exist before. So how could you have experience doing that thing, right? And then every step that you're going up and up, hopefully, you know, and there's downs, but whenever you're improving, you're getting to a new stage that you've never been a part of before. So yeah. it's almost like you don't even need to call it imposter. So it's just like, hey, shit, I've just, I've never done this before, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know, what do you think? And what was it like for you, especially that kind of first, that three-year period where, it sounds like it, it was a big factor in in leading to your decision to to you know getting the clean break and, and going going to travel yeah no, i mean i mean i agree it it comes down to 
if you're not feeling imposter syndrome, then you're probably not pushing yourself enough. So, you know, the way I look at it is like if you're growing, then you're constantly getting more competent at your job. But also if you're putting new and new things on your plate, then you're going to have that kind of, you know, naive kind of you're going to be a learner, you know, so you're going to be new things. So it's like there's this thing where if you're really growing rapidly, the amount of new things that you're taking on is increasing, but also your competency at the other things. So it's like you're kind of always basically just go. You have those two vectors that are kind of constantly at at, at like an edge, mm-hmm. and it just increases. And a lot of people that I I, I I kind of mentor, particularly like people that are you know not exactly founders, but they're like you know in marketing departments or marketing managers, directors or whatever that are you know early, mid late twenties, you know say. Um, they deal with that a lot and you know they're increasing they're not used to being managers they're not used to directing people and they just feel like i have no idea what i'm doing and i'm like that's okay you know if you didn't you wouldn't be growing you know so like it's it's fine and and it's okay to ask for help and i would say the biggest thing is like it's okay to say you don't know something and um kevin rose he was the founder of dig which was like the precursor in a lot of ways to reddit um, and he's a you know a venture capital. He's an angel investor, and he's worked with you know, Google Ventures, and and he's I mean just one of the most intelligent dudes when it comes to angel investing and venture capital out there. And he hears he's probably heard thousands and thousands of thousands of like pitch you know pitch decks and all that other stuff from people. And he said one of the biggest I think it was like a year or two ago one of the podcasts he does with Tim Ferriss he said that one of the biggest things that he realizes he messed up on is that he didn't admit when he didn't know something. Hmm. And that is something that I agree with. Like as as have, a founder or as a... Yeah. Yeah. As a human being, as a founder, because that ultimately was part of the derailment at Dig, is that he hmm. thought he knew stuff or he, he didn't know stuff, but he acted like he did, and then people didn't question him on it. And people didn't push back. Or he didn't get help. You know, so it, it hmm. kind of made him to make some very poor decisions that he, in retrospect, really, you know, regrets. Uh, can't speak for the guy, but it's, you know, it's kind of the vibe that I got after listening to him. So yeah, I agree with that. You know, it's like I, I, I had a lot of shortcomings as a, a leader, and as a boss, and as a coworker, and as a colleague, and all the, I had a lot of shortcomings. And um, I don't think I actively sought out help and mentorship like I should have. So that that really caused a lot of issues. As far as how, you know, how it manifested for me is like I've always had severe anxiety. Um and it just all these things just put it in the overdrive. I mean I remember uh kind of a story I t- to tell a lot is when I first started the first iteration of the of the, the agency in twenty ten, um the first, you know, real serious lead that I got was from a bankruptcy attorney here in Dayton. And, uh, you know, I, I knew that it was going to be a pretty sizable contract. And I went there, I had like black sneakers and like black jeans, it, which is fine. But then I got, I went to the store, I went to like the thrift store and picked up like an ill fitting, like black suit jacket. <laughs> and I just must've looked like pathetically adorable. And I walk in there to this bankruptcy attorney and he's got this office like high up on like the 20 something floor of this, you know, the sky rise here in Dayton. And we're in a meeting there and, you know, I, we're, we're, I had everything laid out and my pitch, I think, was probably pretty good. Like the bones of it, even looking back, I think it was probably all right. 
but I was just flubbing it, man. I was so nervous. I was like shaking. Now I could just tell. I mean, I've been on enough like client, uh, you know, consultations with my dad at the tree service. Like I could just tell, like this ain't going anywhere. And so yeah. at the end, we were wrapping up, and I just said, "Hey, man, can I ask you a question?" Or like, you know, and he's like, "Yeah." He's like, "What? What are you actually thinking right now? Like, just all bullshit aside." I'm pretty sure I even said all bullshit aside. Like, well, you know, what what are you feeling right now? And he just kind of looked at me. And he was just like, well, you know, I could go with fine law, which is like the, you know, big gorilla in the marketing world for lawyers. And he's like, they're actually kind of comparable in price. Uh, and, you know, I don't think they're going to do an amazing job, but they'll probably do an adequate job. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're kind of around the same price and there's definitely, you know, risks that I'm taking you're young and maybe a little inexperienced, but I also think that you're probably going to put a lot more time and attention into this. And I was like, yeah, I would. And he's like, and I'm like, well, would it, I forget if he proposed it or I did, but he basically was just like, you know, I, I, I think I'd be comfortable with this so we could get the price down of it. I'm like, well, how much? And he told me it ended up only being a couple hundred bucks. I think it was like $300 or something less a month, but it was still like a $2,500 a month contract. And I was like, mm-hmm. all right, <laughs> yeah, I can do that. I yeah. thought he was going to say like, get it down to like a thousand or 800 or something. He's like, nah, just take a couple hundred bucks off. I'm like, okay. And, and, and like, if I did that, would you be more comfortable? He's like, I think so, but let me think about it. I said, okay. And he's like, let me get back to you in like two weeks. Sure enough, pretty much on the dot, two weeks later, I get an email and I thought it was gone. I thought I wasn't going to get it. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, I'd like to work with your company. And I was like, holy shit, I got a $2,500 a month, like contract. And, you know, I'm like, you know, 19, 20, however old I was. And I'm like, this is awesome. And I can move out again, do all this other stuff. And, you know, I, I moved back with my, my, my dad temporarily because, because, uh, you know, I didn't want to get a place. Like I wanted to start a business. He's like, Hey, just, just move back in with me while you start your business. And like, you know, I thought it was going to take me a while. And they're like, Hey, out of the gate, I got a client. Cool. And, um, yeah and it's like what that taught me was a lot but anyway so fast forward like two weeks later we we sign the agreement we sign a contract and we have our first kind of discovery meeting and i am walking up and down the driveway rehearsing what i'm gonna say for like two hours (laughs) and i'm shaking and then i have the call and i don't even say most of the stuff that i was rehearsing and i i just that was an aha moment for me where i'm like I already had the hard meeting with him. He already signed the contract and he paid me the first month. And now I'm worried about having a discovery meeting where I just ask him questions and I don't have to do anything. Like it was just insane. I realized like how much I felt out of my element, even though I had been freelancing for a long time, but there was something about this being like a business proper that just really bothered me like oh it's pure web results llc it's like no it's just me mm-hmm. you know and that's one of the things it's kind of interesting i had to face that again when i started consulting because i was used to doing it under you know my last business catapult creative and that was a business i was representing a business which in a way helped it was a hindrance when i was doing it on my own when we first started the first one but towards the end it helped like hey you know i'm just i'm just representing the business but then when I had to go back to it just being me, I'm like, oh, I got to do this again. This is, un, you know, this is unusual. And so it's just it's just interesting how we look at identity as an entrepreneur and how we interface a personal brand, because everybody really has a personal brand. 
but if you're an entrepreneur, you most definitely have a personal brand, even if you don't want to think about it. And for a long time, I didn't want to think about it that way. That's actually what gave me anxiety. And I, I intentionally did not have a personal brand. I had my other business partner who was more of a, a traditional extrovert. Um, I'm an extrovert, but I'm a fairly introverted one. Um, not as much, but still. But he was a traditional extrovert, like always being out people. And I'm like, you know what? You take care of that. You be the public face of the business. Like, I don't want to deal with all that. And I think that might have been the right call for a while. But I think what that did was also make me overly comfortable with just being in the background. And I think that I didn't there, there's a lot of gains that I would have had as a person and as an entrepreneur if I would have put a lot more effort into like, I want to do skating gigs, I want to do this, I want to do that. I think a lot of doors would have opened up for me a lot sooner personally. And I think I probably would have felt a lot more comfortable leaving sooner uh, because there was definitely that part of me when I left the, the business in 2016, like, can I do this again? Mm-hmm. You know? And like, it's kind of dumb because I did have evidence that I could do it. Mm-hmm. I had evidence I could do it several times. I started from nothing in 2010 and did pretty damn good until I merged in 2013. So it's like I had evidence that I could, but at the time, you know, it's like that imposter syndrome reared its head and was just like, yeah, you, you might not figure this out. And it's just, it's just insidious. I don't know. So it, it's, it was hard. You know, again, I don't know who I am in my early 20s. I never had that period where you go off to college and just kind of think of yourself. I never had that, you know. So, it, it was it was difficult, but ultimately, I, I think it was taking that RV trip and just being able to just riff and just figure out who I was. And that was something that I did a lot is I just go into coffee shops. I go into little punk bars. I go into whatever. And I just be like, you know what? I'm going to be this character. You know, like I, had, I, I, I would kind of joke and say I have all these David Bowie characters. They're 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 parts of me. It's not insincere. I'm not lying to people, but there's parts of me that are a little more extroverted. There's parts of me that are a little more sarcastic. There's parts of me that are more of this. And I decide when I go into these places, I'm just going to completely lean into that as much as I can. Just hmm. take that side of me and bring it as much to the surface. And I realized that people liked those exaggerated forms of myself more than baseline me. And the reason why is because I realized it's almost like you had an EQ and I muted all of them. I, I, I put them. It wasn't that I just took I was baseline. Truly, I actually wasn't baseline. My baseline was all the 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 fringe, you know, obscure highs and lows were dialed way, way down. And I was just kind of this bland middle. And I was safe, but it actually wasn't safe. It actually hurt me a lot. It felt safe. It gave me the illusion of safety. But actually, I had a lot of people when I came back into town, and I started talking with them. And they're like, wow, you, you, you seem very different. You seem very present and like you're open and you have this energy to you. Like, I got to be honest, you, I kind of thought you were an asshole before. <laughs> like, I had people tell me that a lot. And, you know, it wasn't high key asshole. It was just like I didn't talk to people. It's kind of quiet. It's kind of dismissive. They thought mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I'm too good for you or whatever. It wasn't that. It was that I felt imposter syndrome and I didn't want to talk to it. I felt anxious. But they read it as I'm an asshole and I'm smug and I'm up my own ass. It wasn't sometimes maybe that was the case, but most of the time it wasn't. So when I went out there and I was just playing these different characters, I got to actually see like in a completely blank slate, like, oh, okay, like this isn't that bad. What was I actually worried about? You know? Right. So do you think then, Josh, it's important for people 
to have a journey like that at some point in their life because it it does kind of stick out now that you kind of highlighted it if you go right from high school into the business world or you know employment like there's a i think there's an underappreciated level of growth that we go through between like 20 and 25 right largely because you don't really see it right when you grow from 0 to 18 you can you can kind of notice it every year and then around 20, you know, maybe different depending on the person and depending on the gender, your physical growth starts to obviously stop. But I really think that's when, like, I think I changed more between 20 and 25 mentally than, like, I don't know, 15 to 20 or, or, or 10 oh, yeah. to 15 personally. So does everybody need to go through a journey like that to kind of find themselves or, or to maybe be comfortable or to get over things like certain social anxieties or certain imposter syndromes? What do you think? Everybody, probably not. Um, but for a lot of people, I think it would help. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I think internships are something that really don't get the attention they need. You know, I mean, there's a lot of debates about should internships be paid or free or whatever. And you know, I, I think it's unrealistic a lot of the time. If it's a small shop, it could be like all internships have to be paid because there's a lot of, I know it's very controversial, but whatever. I mean, I, 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 there's just a lot of kids that we had come in that were doing internships that at cost us money. Like the amount of time that we would have to sit there and teach them everything and get them up to speed and whatever. And they just, it, it was a lot. So if I had to pay that person as well, and here's the thing. It's not like they're going to be a full-time employee and then you're investing that time. We're going to teach them a bunch of stuff. They're going to get a lot of experience and then they're going to go off and they're going to do an internship somewhere else or they're going to continue school. Maybe every once in a while we hire one of them. But it's like, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I, we wouldn't take, have, we wouldn't have done as many internships if we had to pay for every single one of them. Now, there were some who were, you know, really qualified and you know already had a lot of experience and those people i didn't mind doing paid internships with because like they were contributing value you know they're basically like a kind of a, a, a assistant or something like that that's fine um but you know i think that if you're an entrepreneur being able to be sh you know shadowing someone who if you you know a small young entrepreneur and you you're you're you can have the ability to shadow somebody and they can like mentor you. I think that is infinitely worth a lot. And, and so, you know, if you're a huge, uh, you know, several hundred or thousand person agency, yeah, you could probably afford to, to pay those internships. But if it's a small operation, you know, I, I don't know. I don't always, I don't think I'd agree with the, I don't agree with the thought like every internship should be paid, but that mm -hmm. said, um, I think it just would limit a lot. Um, so, you know, so that said, I think something like that's beneficial. There's there's also a lot of kind of, you know, going overseas kind of stuff that you can do that I think would be very, very beneficial. Um, just had a guest on, John Hears, and he, he runs an organization like that. And they do what they call uh, immersion ships. So, like, hmm. you go into another country and you, you know, live with some of the people there. You learn their language. You help on local projects, like, stuff like that. I think stuff like that would be very beneficial um there's so many different things you can do but i do think that it is very detrimental to a lot of people's growth as a person and also as a professional they just go from high school and to college into getting a job 
or going from high school into starting a business or whatever, I, I think that there's kind of a loading period. And ideally you would find you you would find some sort of mentorship where you can learn from somebody and just ask them those questions and have that one on one relationship. I didn't really have that. I think that would have I think if I would have had somebody to kind of be an Obi Wan Force Ghost for me, it would have helped. You know, and and, and I Every once in a while, I'll have people reach out to me uh, over LinkedIn or whatever. I had one guy actually on Matchmaker FM, which is a, a platform that I use. I'd recommend to you if you haven't done it. But you can go on there as a, uh, a podcaster or someone who wants to be a guest on podcast, and it kind of links you together. It's a pretty mm-hmm. cool little app. I get people that hit me up all the time. And this one dude hit me up, and he 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 was really smart. Like he, he basically was like, Hey, I'm putting together this like mastermind for other podcasters. It's going to be like, you know, do this, this, and this It's going to be like, you know, 2,500 bucks. Do you want to be in? And I'm like, no, thanks, man. I don't really need help with that. Like my podcast is starting out, but I've been doing marketing strategy for 20 years. Like I, I'm good. I don't, I don't need help with this. I'm just not a good fit, you know, but I'm sure there's a lot of people. And he just came back and he's like, I'm curious. What, you say it's not a good fit. What would make it a good fit? And, and he and he just kept asking me these questions. And I started giving him some advice on this. I'm like, okay, we well, could do this. And I'm like, also another issue is that you're just getting a, a group of like 20 podcasters together. I don't really give, I don't really care about meeting 20 other podcasters. Even if it's all like, he's like, well, it's just personal development. And I'm like, personal development could be uh, some, you know, dude want doing a gym podcast. It could be someone talking about crystals. It could be someone like a Gary Vaynerchuk or something. It's just kind of like hype, hype, hype. Uh, no hate on Gary V. Uh, but that's just not my style. Or you could have somebody like myself. that's more long form and whatever. I'm like, all those people I have about as much in common with as someone who's doing like a golf or a hockey podcast. Mm-hmm. It's just very different. And I'm like, so that doesn't probably have any value to me. If you could find 20 other people that do long form raw conversations like this all right now i'm a little more interested so i'm like i think you need to differentiate a little bit then he asked me some follow-up questions and i just gave him like a list of books and resources and things and he was just like oh my god this is so helpful thank you and i was like it's fine dude i'm like i gave my email address I'm like hey hit me up down the line let me know how you're doing your journey and and, you know now i it on linkedin and it's just like that dude if he wants to he just pick my brain i'd have no problem asking questions like and the only reason he got that is because he asked Right. He hit me up and instead of being turned down, instead of feeling like defeated, he just asked, okay, why? He just kept asking me why. Mm-hmm. And he was receptive and thankful and appreciative. So I was just like, I if you're gonna if you if you're not gonna be a dick, if you're not gonna ask too much of me and all you do is ask why, I have absolutely no problem giving you input and being there. And I liked the vibe. I like how he handled all the conversations. And so it's like, hey, that that, that dude wanted to. I, I, I would increasingly be like a, a kind of a mentor to him. You can create those hmm. kind of things. Most people just don't because yeah. of the imposter syndrome. <laughs> well, I, th- I think the other thing too with like mentorship is people overthink it. They think of it as like this <clears throat> scary formal. Oh, I have to go bend down and you know <clears throat> ask yeah. this famous older person to be my mentor the best kind of relationships that i've formed that i would now you know pretty comfortably call you know some mentors in my life i've never asked them to be a mentor it just kind of like happened like even a couple times it happened with clients of mine that i dealt with years ago and we just started they happened to be older and far more successful and and you know 
conversations veer into me asking them questions. And next thing you know, a few years have gone by and we have a chat, you know, sometimes it's every quarter, right? Sometimes it's every six months. It's like, hey, you know, John, I, I'm in this scenario that I think you would have good feedback on. What do you think? You know, and if you're like you said, if you're not a douche about it, if you're not trying to take too much time from someone, in most cases, they're actually like, yeah, no problem. Like, let me know if you need more help, you know, like, because uh, people love giving advice, right, too. Like, if, if you go down to, to the core, humans, most of us are good people who like to help. You know, if like once a month for 30 minutes, you get on a phone call and you help someone who's 10 years younger and that's a great feeling, right? Getting off that phone call yeah. for you. So yeah. I, th I think more people should just don't put a fancy title on it and just be a genuine person and don't even think about it as something fancy and formal to keep it super casual. And there's so many people out there that would, that would probably, probably gladly help. Right. Yeah. If you had to go back to a uh, 20, 20 year, you know, your 20, your 20 year old self, that, I mean, what would you, what would you say to yourself about like seeking mentorships? I mean, <clears throat> about mentorship specifically, like I've been, I've been lucky. So I kind of like the opposite of you for me was like my first real journey into entrepreneurship was inspired by a friend of mine who reached out and said, Hey, my dad is retiring, but doesn't want to do nothing. Do you want to like, do you want him to mentor you? <laughs> like, do you want to start your own business and have him mentor you? Cause he's uh, done it on for a ladder. Yeah, on exactly. A ladder, man. <laughs> it was a softball lob, like over the, over the plate. And so <clears throat> I don't know. I, I, I've been very lucky in a wide variety of ways my whole life, but that's how my like entrepreneurial journey began was um, working underneath a, a mentor, right? And, and, and it was great. And then what ended up happening was instilled in me pretty quickly was like, this is kind of sweet. Like I'm in my mid twenties and I'm growing my own business. And anytime something confusing or hard comes about, I just call this guy and he like gives me his advice and it's usually pretty good. Like maybe it doesn't answer the question, but at the very least it like steers me in the direction of people or resources where I can find an answer. So ever since then, like that was probably what I'm, I'm turning 31 next week. That was probably like six, seven years ago. And so because of that, I've always kept, not in like a schemey way, but like I've kept an eye out for people like that that come across my life and just made sure to build legitimate and I think positive relationships with them both ways and ask them for help when I needed it. So like I got lucky, right? Like, I don't know, like yeah. what would you tell your 20 year old self? Because I benefited, uh, you know, I'm still early in my career and I've, benefited immensely from mentors yeah I, I find it funny that next week uh we're, we're both gonna the 31 josh club we're both gonna be 31 both named josh so it's just funny oh we really what get day connected uh mine's october 16th okay so i just find it funny that we're both be 31 next week but anyway as a little god i'm turning into a dad it's like this uh everyone in my everyone in my life just jokingly calls me dad uh, yeah. because i'm i am increasingly leaning into that dad role but like i'm just making dad jokes and dad comments and stuff like that and 
uh, I, I think 21 year old me would be disgusted with <laughs> <laughs> like Jesus Christ dude you're so corny but anyway um, yeah man I, I, I think it would come down to I think I would just say like okay 31 year old Josh talking to 21 or 20 year old Josh I'd just be like dude it's not it doesn't matter like it's, it's 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 like it doesn't matter every it, it, Wayne Gretzky every shot you don't take you miss you know you miss 100% of the shots you don't take um there are millions of people out there that fit a prerequisite to mentor you just hit people up have no real ask ask a very specific simple question that would take them one line or a minute tops to answer and just shoot it out so find some people you know like there's it could just be hey i'm an uh, okay so let's let's actually do a, a real version of this i'm gonna mentor myself right now <laughs> okay okay 20 year old josh what are you struggling with the most right now it's like well i just started this business i'm really having difficulty with my anxiety dealing with these meetings and clients and i know i need to hire somebody soon uh but i'm scared about having that financial burden and i'm afraid of giving up control because what if the 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 work they do isn't as good as i want it to do and the whole thing of me being a freelancer the last seven years is that i do everything myself and i've hired other people to do things that i can't do but even that i uh you know i'm, I'm very spe i pick specialists so i, I don't know and i'm like okay well you got two things there one is sales and imposter syndrome and the other one is scaling and hiring and learning how to outsource properly so why don't you find someone who is a sales you know head of sales uh and they are in a town that is maybe on the opposite side of ohio that you really have no connection to so i'm in dayton which is about an hour north of cincinnati and about uh, an hour west of Columbus. So maybe I pick Cleveland because that's literally on the opposite and end both horizontally and vertically. It's four hours away. I had a handful of contacts in Cleveland, but if I reach out to a bunch of marketing directors there or whoever else, I don't really care. Doesn't matter. But the reason why Ohio is important is because, hey, I'm a fellow Ohio entrepreneur. It means a lot more than like, hey, you're in Utah. Mm -hmm. it's just it matters i if somebody hit me up and they're from cleveland i have a much higher time much higher probability of reaching back or, or replying to them than someone who's in austin texas so i would pick it where it's far it's close but far enough away where i don't have to matter it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't make me nervous like if i hit up people in columbus or cincinnati that's only an hour away i do a lot of business with businesses there I might run into them again at some point, or I might have a, like a, you know, a, some sort of connection. So, okay, that's the first thing. Second thing is, what is a question that is really, what is the question of questions? And lay out all the questions. If you had this person in front of you that was like, could be your sales Obi-Wan or your, your scaling Obi-Wan or whatever, uh, hiring Obi-Wan, what would you ask those two people? And just write it all down. Now, almost like Lego blocks, arrange those in orders of importance and then think about what question would start the conversation with the least amount of friction that is your doorway question 
you ask them that. But it has to be a question that actually you think is going to be meaningful. But again, it has to be a doorway question. And once you do that, just send it out. Find find like 20 people maybe. Because if you only pick one or two, then then you're going to be really nervous because if they don't get back to you, then you fail. But if you pick 20, then you got a high probability of at least a couple people getting back to you. But if you pick 100 or 50, now it's daunting and you're not going to do it. So pick between 15 and 20 people. I wouldn't do under 10 because, again, then you, your, your, your probability of getting a response is, you know, not as high. And uh, it's going to matter more. So do that and just send it out. Expect you're not going to get a response. And expect if they do get a response, it's probably going to be very short. And you might be surprised. Some of those people might be like me, where I sent that guy like several paragraphs per, per response. And I'm just sitting there on the app typing it while I'm like laying in bed or something. Mm-hmm. It took me five minutes, but it might have made that dude's day or week or month. You know, some of the yeah. books that I recommended to him, and I said this in the response, some of the books I recommended to him, like, this is better than a marketing MBA. Like, this is better than a college degree. These t- two books I recommended. And I believe that very much so. Because um, I've recommended those books to a lot of people, and they're like, they didn't teach us this in college. And I'm like, yeah, they're not. Which, so, which two? I got to ask uh, now. The Business of Expertise by David C. Baker and The Brain on It by Sean D'Souza. So The Business of Expertise is teaching you how do you interface as a consultant or an advisor or a freelancer or whatever with your customers when your business is being an expert. And I think that there is a that is predominantly meant for agency owners or consultants or freelancers. But I honestly think that if you interface in a professional setting at all, there's so much wisdom in there. Hmm. I, I, I recommend it to most people that have to deal with clients one-on-one in any capacity. The second one is The Brain on it by Sean D'Souza. And Sean D'Souza is a cartoonist hmm. that basically wanted to figure out how to market his own services better. And he just digested like a hundred different books on marketing. And what I like about him is that he's a creative problem solver. He's a cartoonist. So he's always thinking about how can I say the most amount possible in the shortest amount of time? Because again, it's one of those things if you said a cartoonist doing a marketing book doesn't make sense. But when you think about the fact that they have three or four panels and they have to tell a story and it has to be super thin, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and that's he has that's why I love it because he has such a unique perspective, and he basically created this framework uh, out of looking at the commonalities of all these marketing books. He digested it down in this really simple framework, and actually, you could just put in the brain audit bullet points in Google, and it, it basically he did this for you. Where the, this guy was going to do the bullet points, and he literally just looked at the chapters, the summaries of the chapter. He did Sean D'Souza did it for you. Mm-hmm. So you literally could just read the bullet points and it tells you just about everything you need to know. Still recommend reading the book. Uh, and the audiobook's pretty cool because he reads it himself hmm. and he like has like these little musical interludes and stuff. It's really creative. It's 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 one of the most unique audiobooks I've ever listened to. Um and he's priming you because he has these little audio cues in between them and you realize, "Oh, you're priming me." Like mm-hmm. like he's 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 doing his own stuff in the audiobook. It's super interesting. Um, Very cool. So, so I re- I recommended that to him, and like if he read those, that could have changed his life. Like it's, yeah. when I read those books, it changed my life. So, you know, all he did was he hit me up, 
And then I said, hey, not a good fit. And then he asked me a really simple question. You know, what would have made it a good fit for you? Uh, and uh, I also said um, in the, the second response that there's I don't really do many masterminds because most of them are great with a couple exceptions. And he said, what were those exceptions? That was a great Some question. Some good questions, yeah. Super quick. It took I could have answered that in a sentence. I ended up writing two paragraphs mm -hmm. because I was like, that's a good question. You ask yeah. a good question, you're going to get a good response. So that's how I do it. You know, I when I when I was doing the RV trip connected to this, um, I, I kind of jokingly say I tendered across America <laughs> because I just I, I was lonely, dude. You go into a new town and like you just want to make friends. I am I, someone's polyamorous, so I have non-monogamy. But at the same time, even if I wasn't, I met a lot of people that uh, was just friends. Like we just met up, got drank, became drinking buddies completely outside of the context of you know, romantic or sexual or whatever. I made some really cool friends. And what that taught me though, was when I was in my hometown, there was a scarcity bias. I'm like, there's only so many people here and I'm a weirdo. So there's only so many people here. There's a couple vectors. I'm a weirdo. I have a very unique lifestyle um, because I'm a business owner and I'm young and uh, I'm in Dayton, Ohio, which I love Dayton, but it's not exactly a hotbed for, you know, super alternative people. So, and also um, I know a lot of people in the downtown community and I don't want to date any of them. And I don't want to date anyone that happens to be best friends with one of those people. So slim pickings, because you go on Tinder around here, you're going <laughs> to see a lot of people that you know, or vice versa. So mm -hmm. I'm like, huh? So I had this scarcity bias, like I can't mess it up and I'm afraid to message people and whatever, even though it's stupid. When I went on the road, absolutely no scarcity bias. I'm sometimes going to be in a town for a day or two. So I just was like, bing, 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 just showing out intro messages. And I didn't overthink it. And dude, it worked and it worked really well. And that taught me, um, I'm overthinking this. There are so many times out there. And like, I, I you know, it, then I came back and I started working again and I started thinking about doing outreach. I'm like, oh, no, no, I don't want to mess it up with this founder because I really like his brand. I'm, and I'm just like, dude, you learn this lesson with tender. Mm -hmm. So now, like, I always try to think about how can I approach, approach sales like tender? Like, right. I'm going to throw it out there. There's either a mutual fit, a mutual attraction, or there's not. Some people, the way I talk, turns them off. They don't like that I curse. They don't like that I'm super uh, seemingly unprofessional. They don't like how loose I am. They don't like any of this stuff. Um, there's other people that cannot stand the people, the opposite end of the spectrum. There are people that love me because I'm super honest and they feel like they can have an open conversation with. And there's people in the middle that are neutral. I just have to find those people that are my tribe. I like me, you know? So that was a huge thing for overcoming my imposter syndrome and feeling like I could reach out to people and it wasn't like uh, hurting me, like I'm burning bridges or something. I don't know. Right. It, it's actually interesting how many, how I think how much overlap is between dating, relationships, you know, all that kind of stuff and, and business. You, I mean, you just, you just expressed one clear example right there. Uh, Josh, super interesting. I just wanted to ask as we're kind of, we're pushing close to two hours here, which has been awesome. I, I think this uh, definitely a lot of the benefits I was hoping to get out of a, a longer form conversation, I think, have been able to benefit from. In terms of the last couple of years, right, you, you, you took that time off, you quote unquote went to, you know, you found yourself, you, you become a lot more comfortable. Um, you're doing consulting where you're, you know, you're, you're kind of 
like you said earlier, you pick who you work with. It's more on your own terms. What would you recommend to, to some other people maybe right now that can relate to some of the previous struggles that you had? What are some of the things you're doing now? Some of which you've already mentioned. Maybe there's one or two more, or maybe there's more that, that you haven't, but that you would recommend to other people that are looking to kind of build, whether it's the business or the lifestyle or even the mentality that seems to be working really well for you right now. So, I mean, the, what are you optimizing for question is the first thing that I always go back to, but we already tra traveled that. Um, the second is, is kind of related, but it doesn't seem like it, but it's protect the asset. And hmm. I forget where I picked that up from. I, I think it was um, the, the dude that wrote Essentialism. I'm pretty sure it was in there. Um, Essentialism is a fantastic book that I recommend people. That's basically was a big inspiration for me um, when I was started consulting again and kind of doing the whole shift where it's just like focusing only on the most essential. Uh, busy is laziness, which is something Tim Ferriss also talks about a lot. You know, busyness is just you're being lazy and you're not coming up with better better processes. But protect the asset. What that meant to me is that the biggest asset is not your business. It's not any of that stuff, it's you. It is your body and it is your brain being in good working order. And we have this really um, insidious and inaccurate sort of image of what the ideal entrepreneur is. And they're working all hours, they're staying up all night and they got their headphones on, they got this crazy music going on. They're just in the zone and and I, I think that's very toxic that is something i romanticized that in my early 20s and it gave me an ulcer and not very seriously it probably knocked at least five years off my life like for real it probably did knock years off my life for what i was doing to my heart and everything i have an autoimmune disease right now that i'm dealing with that i think was sourced from that uh it's i'm just going to the cleveland clinic right now and dealing with it and everything that i'm learning about is the limbic system and the limit the all almost all autoimmune issues are caused by a negative feedback loop and your body then getting stuck in that negative feedback loop and mine was stress and now my vagus nerve is dysfunctional and it's sending signals stress signals to my brain and it i have to rewire that it takes a lot of time so i literally have developed an autoimmune disease most likely from the stress i put myself in in my early 20s which is insane right so you if you're in your early 20s and you're doing that uh there are there's a price to pay there is no free lunch uh it will cost you you might be like me and develop an autoimmune disease you might have a heart attack you might have whatever it, it you might it, it's gonna cost you so what i'd recommend is protect the asset every single time you feel that urge like i need to pull an all-nighter just take a step back go take a walk go do whatever meditate which is another one i'll get into here in a minute uh whatever you need to do just pause dude pause and just take a step back and be like do you actually need to pull an all-nighter because that's going to be fun it's going to give you some dopamine you get to have some coffee or some tea late at night and you get to have, you know get your soundtrack blaring you get to feel like you're in the social network and you're just crushing it that's fun and it's sexy, but when you wake up tomorrow and you're fucking exhausted and you start your day late and then you realize you got all these emails you didn't get packed to and you wake up in a panic, is that really worth it? 
The answer is no, you know? So, and you only find that out when you've done enough iterations. You've done enough, you've danced the dance enough times. But if you're aware of it, pay attention to it. You don't believe me right now? Pay attention to it. Keep a journal. Every single time you feel like you want to pull an all-nighter, write down why you, what, what you're thinking and why you feel like you're going to do it. And then the next morning or the next day, if you stayed up all night, write what you got done and how you feel after you woke up and you're exhausted. Actually, you should do it the night after. Because mm -hmm. then you had to deal with the whole day. Yeah. And if you don't do that and you go to bed, the next night, write in the next page how your day went. And very quickly, I think you're going to realize that having that kind of objective, more objective view of yourself from the third party, you're going to be like, wow, okay, every time I stay up all night, it sucks. It takes me a day or two to get back into it. And then the nights that I actually do go to fuck the bed and I wake up at a decent time, most of that stuff's not as urgent as it feels like it. Don't get me wrong. There might be an exception every once in a while. I get you. But most of the time, not so much. The other thing is just take care of yourself. I, I didn't I didn't prioritize eating healthy. And I knew what eating healthy looked like for the most part. But I just didn't do it as much because, hey, I'm going to live forever. I'm in my early 20s. Now that's just going to keep up with you. Something that's helped me a lot is just smoothies. Get mm -hmm. like a magic bullet. Get a ninja. Get whatever. You don't have to spend a lot. Um Magic Bullet's like 30 bucks. There's way better ones. Don't get me wrong. Vitamax and all that stuff. But if you don't have a lot of money, $30, get a Magic Bullet. Uh, and just throw... I I, treat, I throw an arsenal, like the kitchen sink in there. Every single kind of powder and every single type of vegetable and whatever. Uh, it's amazing, by the way, what like almond milk or coconut milk and some uh, frozen, uh, frozen blueberries and like a banana because the banana will give it that smooth consistency mm -hmm. and the potassium, the, the frozen blueberries make it taste really good. And you get some of the polyphenols and you get some good stuff in there. Uh, and the almond milk or the coconut milk, whatever you prefer, oat milk, doesn't matter. Get unsweetened. That gives it a nice consistency as well. You can throw as many greens as you want in there and it's going to taste like a smoothie. It's not going to taste like you're drinking uh, leaf water, you know? Yeah. So, do that because that's something that you can do. It takes you like two minutes and then you can put it in the fridge. And then when you, yeah, when you think you don't have a lunch break, you can just bash the thing. Um, that's great. Sauna, get in a sauna, sweat as much as you can. Uh, at the very least, if you can't do that, get a cold shower. Uh, if you don't want to, if you look up Dr. Rhonda Patrick, uh, uh sauna, uh, evidence, look up Dr. Rhonda Patrick, uh, uh, cold exposure, uh, look up Wim Hof, uh, W-I-M, and then H-O-F-F, Hof. He, he has a whole technique. There's a bunch of research on this. But anecdotally, I don't care how stressed out I am. I will get in a sauna, and I will do it until I can't take it anymore, and I'll go get in a cold shower. It is better than Xanax. It is better <laughs> than an Ativan. It gives you total clarity. It is amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, if I don't have time for a sauna, I will just get in a cold shower, 20, 30 seconds in that thing. You come out, and you're like, ah! like you know you're reborn mm -hmm. um but the sauna everyone thinks when i say sauna everyone thinks i have like a like a ten thousand dollar barrel sauna in my backyard which i i do about to buy a house and that is the first thing i'm going to do when i can but uh you temporarily could you can just buy uh, uh there's like a tent basically it's like a water sealed uh, tent a waterproof tent on amazon and it just has like a, an industrial like humidifier that plugs huh. into it and it's like a hundred bucks just look up wet sauna on amazon 
buy one of those things. I hacked mine, so I have two of the humidifiers going in because I'm crazy. <laughs> um, but you can do that, and it doesn't take up much space. You could put that like you could put that anywhere. Uh, it's fantastic. It's wonderful. Uh, if you got a gym, go do it there. It doesn't matter. Um, just overall, there's a couple supplements that have really helped me a lot that I've given to other people, and it really helps them. Very minimal side effects. I, I take about 10 to 15 different supplements a day. At hmm. one point, I was taking 30 plus a day. Uh, I'm insane when it comes to nootropics. However, the the couple that I'd recommend the most that with all my friends that are also kind of neurotic seems to help them. One is phosphatidylserine. And I actually discovered that by through Peter Atia, uh, because he was mentioning how he, when COVID started, he's a doctor and he has a lab, and they basically shifted all of their focus to COVID. And because saying how rapidly things were happening, and this is back when it first started, when we were like, this might be, not that it wasn't serious, but this might be like really, really grave. So he was having problems sleeping. And he's like, I never had problems sleeping. So he was taking phosphatidylserine because it helps curb the production of cortisol. So it allows you to naturally, it doesn't, it doesn't have any side effects for me. It doesn't make you tired. It's not like melatonin where it makes you groggy. It just helps your body naturally cool down. I like to explain it as a, like you have a kettle, like a tea kettle on a stove and it's about to boil over. You take it off the stove. It's not like you're putting it in ice water, but you're just allowing it to naturally cool down. That's what phosphatidylserine does. It's amazing. Another one is long vita, which is a type of curcumin, like turmeric. And it's optimized to uh, cross the blood brain barrier. So what it'll do hmm. is I take it and it actually lowers inflammation in the brain and it significantly reduces my anxiety. So if I have any sort of speaking event I gotta do, if I have any client meeting or if I have anything stressful that's going on, like I know I gotta take a road trip and there's a lot of traffic and I have to go through like you know crazy things, I'll just take a phosphatidylserine and, a, and a, the, the, the long vita curcumin and what that does is help the production of cortisol from not spiking, but also it'll reduce the inflammation in your brain, which for me significantly reduces my anxiety because anxiety typically tends to increase inflammation and it gets worse. Those two things, again, no side effects. Worst case scenario that I've seen is it just doesn't do anything. But for some of my people that I have in my life, it has been a game changer for them. Um, and there's a lot more, but the, the third that I will mention is magnesium L3 and 8. So magnesium L3 and kind of similar to uh, the Long Vita, is it crosses the blood-brain barrier. And most forms of magnesium, a lot of people are magnesium deficient, but most forms of magnesium do not cross the blood-brain barrier. So I, I was having severe anxiety like a year and a half ago. It was really bad. And I didn't know why, because like I didn't have any stressors in my life. I'm like, I'm fine. And then what I realized is that um, it sounded almost like a magnesium deficiency, but my magnesium levels seemed fine when I got blood work done. So I ended up coming across this uh, magnesium L3 and A, and I'm like, I'll give it a try. And I had a call with a buddy of mine who, who you know, we're one of my best friends, and we talk like he's in Vancouver. So we talk like once every month or two, and then we talk for three hours, and then we don't talk for a month or two because he's busy. You know, he's, he's, he's got a business, and, and so am I. So like, we talked and I remember telling him like, man, I'm really struggling right now. Like my anxiety's through the roof. I don't know why. And, and he's just like, dude, I gotta be honest with you. I've heard you anxious. You sound calm. You actually sound calmer than you have in a long time. I was like, actually I do feel calm. And I realized <laughs> I took the magnesium L3 and a like an hour prior when I first got the box of it. And 
my anxiety was gone by like 95%. So it turns out I must have just had a pretty severe magnesium deficiency. Uh, And I've given it to uh, uh, probably about 10 other people to try. And about two of them had a similar response. Like uh, the other ones was like didn't really do anything for them. But now it makes me wonder, two out of 10 people, how many other people out there who have extreme anxiety that might have a magnesium deficiency? And stress can deplete your magnesium levels. So mm-hmm. if you're a chronic person who's stressed out, I think entrepreneurs probably have a much higher percentage of that. So it's something to, something to try. It's very cheap. Uh, uh, magnesium L3 and 8, you get, it's called Magteam, M-A-G-T-E-I-N on Amazon. You can get it. It's super cheap. Just try it out. Um, otherwise, meditation. Uh, I, I mean, you don't... Uh, I'm sure anyone listening has heard a billion things about meditation. Uh, but it truly helps a lot. It creates for me a buffer between my thoughts and my body and it makes me take a step back. And that's something that I've increasingly been leaning into because when I start to get stressed, which I do on a daily basis, I start getting stressed, but I catch myself and I stop that feedback loop from occurring and it's, it's, it's helping and significantly. The thing about meditation is, and this is what I've been learning with the Cleveland clinic as well, the limbic system, neurons that fire together wire together the more you create you meditate and the more you create that buffer the more that gets hardwired into your brain it becomes your default one of the people that i had on the podcast has been a monk for 20 years and he said <laughs> and he used to be a goldman sachs he used to be a sales guy at goldman sachs and had a very stressful job he had a mental breakdown and that's what led him ultimately to go to this retreat 20 years later he's like i don't have thoughts really anymore my brain is <laughs> just calm and after talking with him I believed him very much so he's one of the calmest and most peaceful and genuine people I've had the pleasure of meeting Hmm. and it is possible Um, so I would highly recommend that and then the last thing I would say is this is something that has been very top of mind for me but related to meditation and everything else is uh, two books by Michael Singer which is the untethered soul and the surrender experiment and he is someone who um, and for a lot of entrepreneurs listening, like I think this might resonate with you. I hear people like the, the monk I was talking about, and I'm like, that's great. But were you learning these skills while you were a Goldman Sachs executive? Because mm-hmm. you can go off and like see Nirvana, and don't get me wrong, I increasingly realize how much dedication, how difficult it is to live the lifestyle he did. Absolutely nothing. But I'm just I, I'm just saying that part of me, that entrepreneur part of me is like, yeah, that's great. But could you do this while doing that? Michael Singer is one of those people. He was someone who was getting his Ph.D., decided he discovered meditation and decided he's like, I'm done with this. And then he bought it some land. And then he, long story short, he ended up becoming a professor. He ended up like starting a business. He ended up starting one of the first uh, accounting, the first accounting software companies I think ever, and, and he specialized in healthcare. Completely ended up being he ended up being CEO of a hundred million dollar company while basically being a monk. Right. <laughs> he ran a hundred million dollar company as a stoic master of meditation monk, and that blew my mind. And the the surrender experiment is his autobiography telling you about his journey, and that actually has had a bigger impact on me. Just hearing his journey and how he wrestled with this, because he does wrestle with it, and hearing how he did it on a case per case basis meant more to me than even the uh, the untethered soul, which is kind of like his manifesto. I highly recommend both. If you're someone who's skeptical hmm. about meditation or you think that that is at odds 
with being a high having a high impact life read those uh i think it'll change your perspective in the last two weeks it has significantly changed my worldview uh and Hmm. i've had a lot of people in my life comment like you you seem different um and i've had things where you know you read a book or something and it kind of affects you for like a week or so and it goes back i don't think this is one of those things i think this is something that's going to last but um Right. I don't know. That that's overall my all, all the, the 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 tips and trips, if you will, I would recommend to somebody. I mean that that list is a podcast in and of itself. I, I'll I'll have uh, I'll have some of those in the show notes. Maybe I'll get Josh. Maybe I'll get you to just oh, send yeah, me the cool, list cool. of books and and the yeah. uh, the vitamins and stuff. That would be awesome. Uh, Josh, this is this has been really great. Really appreciate you giving a, a significant amount of your time by podcast uh, standards. Not for you, but you know, for for some of us that are are just venturing into the long form. If folks want to learn more about you, get in touch, check out your podcast. Where where do you recommend that they go? Yeah, joshboone.com. You can find all my stuff on there. Um, if you like hearing me talk, <laughs> you can hear a lot more of it. I think I got like sixty something hours of podcast so far, so you're gonna hear a lot of it if you like it. Uh, just the Josh Boone Show. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever the hell you listen to podcasts, you can find that. Um, if you want to reach out as far as consulting, I help particularly e-commerce companies with, you know, marketing strategy, advising, or, you know, just founders in general. Doesn't matter. Reach out. Give me a shout on LinkedIn or, or joshboon.com and I'd be happy to chat. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, about, that's me. Awesome. Thanks again, Josh, for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure.